The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Why don't you just share a bit at a high level about yourself right now um, so those kind of have some context on who you are and what you do. So I'm a full-time professional. I, uh, I do original oil paintings almost exclusively, and they're, they're freelance. I pretty much don't do commissions anymore. I was, doing, I was being paid to do uh, commissioned portraits by the time I was 14, so I've you know, done commissions for a very long time over the course of my life. But on the other hand, these days, I rarely do them, you know, and it's pretty much just come up with a concept and hope it works, you know, and put the paintings out there. And it's actually been pretty wonderful. They've been, uh, they've been very popular. And so, yeah, I just get up in the morning and go paint. <laughs> awesome. And would you say there are certain uh, themes or topics or um, subjects that you've done a lot of work in, or you're, you're at least known for that you can speak to? Yeah, you know, I was raised with horses, and so, uh, and I'm a, I'm I'm the past president of the uh, oldest Western riding club here in San Diego, and I've been competed in uh, cowboy challenges. You know, where you go through deep water and open gates and sidestep your horse and all kinds of stuff. You know, and I've done cattle sorting and just all kinds of stuff. And so there's this kind of Western background to me that a lot of people, you know, may not typically uh, know about, I would suspect, but, and they would, if they see my work, they'll see a, a huge, well, within the scope of my, you know, my work, uh, there's a lot of Western stuff in there. That's just because I've got that fondness, you know, for the West. And I would say a lot of the people that grew up back, uh, we'll just say when I was a kid, you know, the West was a very big deal, you know, and so that influenced me. And anyway, so I've got, I've got horses in my backyard. You can't see them behind here. There, there's my hand over here. I'm, this is all their saddles all stacked up. <laughs> That's my part of my prop department. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's a part of my life, but it's not the only part of my life. You know, it's a lot of people would like to take, I would say an artist and, and just kind of make a, two-dimensional cardboard cut out of the artist, you know, well, none of us are that way, really. And so another part of me is, uh, you know, I was raised here in San Diego and, and back here in San Diego, I should probably add right now that back when I grew up in San Diego, horses and the West was really a very big thing. A lot of people wouldn't think that about San Diego, but it, but it was. But gosh, you know, as I grew up, I was also into motocross and desert racing, and then I was into... Uh, sailboat racing and surfing and just all kinds of stuff, you know, that probably wouldn't be a big surprise to, you know, some, some young guy growing up here in San Diego. So that is also reflected in my art. And so I've been doing some beach scenes and some other things, uh, uh lately, but, uh, it's all me, you know, it's all the, kind of the same thing. That's awesome. So speaking of what you were just saying a bit about your childhood, motocross, beach sailing, uh, let's start there. So you grew up in San Diego, um, were you interested in art from day one, or it sounds like you had a bunch of different interests growing up as a kid? You know, it's funny. I would say that you know we're all we're all looking for for something that uh, I would say we can find a, a measure of self importance with. I think kids do that, you know, and, and you get kids that are just naturally athletes, you know, and don't be surprised if they. Uh, you know, on a football team as they grow older and so forth, you know, and all the, just all kinds of things like that. Well, for me, drawing was always 
a bit easy for me. By the time I was uh, in the second grade, I was a class artist, you know, and it's kind of been that way my whole life. You know, it's just been, it's been this progression of just pursuing that. And again, not just that, but that has always been something that I've, you know, gone after, sought after. And my mom actually, uh, along those lines, by the time I was 12, my mother began to take me down. I was be, I was being professionally trained to paint by the time I was 12. And she would actually take, we we're in the East County of San Diego, by the way, where all the horses are, and uh, drive all the way down to Balboa Park, which is closer to the coast. And I was being trained there every Saturday for about uh, three or four hours. She would religiously take me down there, get trained, and then bring me back for uh, like five years. <laughs> and so, you know, that was a that was a very big deal. And so that also helped. Like I said, I was doing commission portraits by the time I was fourteen, largely because of the training I'd received there. You and, know how with uh, um, anyway. you know with musicians like uh, Mozart, for example, they learn really at a young age and the brain is so neuroclassic at that time do you think that's something that's similar for artists where if you can get some early quality training that um really helps you in a way where it's just hard to catch up after that have you ever thought about that i would say there's an argument on both sides of that i i would you know it's uh First of all, yes, I, I think there's there's a lot of validity to that, you know. And I, I think what happens, you just you just get a jump start on everybody else, the ten thousand hour thing or more, you know, and uh, where you put in all those hours, you know, and it just helps you, like you said, create those neural pathways and so forth that makes you into something better, whatever that thing is that you do, you know. And if you start that young, you get to be a bit of a prodigy, we'll say, and then you can go ahead and launch out into that. But, you know, there, there's another side to that, that drive has a lot to do with, you know, what you even do with that. So we'll say, I, I happen to personally think that we all are given gifts. That's just what I happen to believe. And so, for example, my roommate, when I met my wife, uh, he ended up, uh, we, we helped train him and he ended up uh, being a walk-on. Uh, he became a San Diego Charger and played for the he was a professional football player for a number of years. And I'm saying that because there's stuff that guy could do that there's no way I could do it. I mean, he had 2010 vision. I, you know, he could, which made a, a great defensive back because he could actually see the quarterback's eyes, you know, from great distances. And he was super fast, which we worked on to make him even faster. And on and on it went. But there were things that that guy could do. That I, I mean, I would never, what I, it was funny that I had one guy was saying, uh, you know, the only way he'd be the uh, quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys is if he bought the team. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, some people are predisposed to be gifted at things. Now, once you have that gift, you know, what do you do with it? And I would say that if you, uh, we'll say you're, you know, you want to take and be a, uh, you know, a gold medal winning Olympic, Olympic uh, ice skater. That takes a lot of effort and, and time and, uh, you know, you, that drive to take and pull that off. You know, it doesn't, and you've got the gift, but you have to take and pour yourself into it, even on top of that. Okay. Now that all said with the gift and the drive, what happened, uh, to bring balance to that had a, uh, I met a guy he's actually an, an attorney and, uh, we became friends and, uh, 
he ended up in the studio. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to get in, into all that, but the point is he ended up in the studio and with his daughter, I'll just say that, with his daughter. His daughter was an artist. He said, gee, would you mind talking to my daughter? And I said, it's fine, bring her over. So I started telling her about things and so forth, and he was blown away. He was intrigued with the stuff I was telling him. And uh, come to find out, he he was ready to leave the studio, both of them were, and he said, you know, he said, I'm going to go out and get some paints, and I'm going to start painting myself. Too. And I thought, super, you know, I mean, good for him. And so the point is, I watched that guy in very short order with no training, with no predisposition to understand how to do things, but I was helping him. And I was telling him, don't do this, do this, and so forth. So on some level, you know, to get the right training, it's a lot easier to do something if you're trained properly than to unlearn, you know, you, if you'd learn stuff wrong and you have to unlearn it, which he didn't have to deal with that, uh, you know, that's tougher. And so I watched that guy and I was blown away at how this guy that, I don't know, I, I'll just say he had a gift for art, maybe didn't know about it. You know, but the bottom line is that the way that guy was painting was shockingly wonderful. And so it can happen. And uh, as far as, you know, what what that guy was was born with and what have you, gosh, I don't know. Uh, I, I would say anybody that I'm, I'm going to say this to your audience, we'll say a lot of people are obviously you will we'll say they're listening to this or watching it and they have a heart for art, we'll say. I think that that. Uh, says a lot just right there. I think if, if someone has a desire to take and pursue art, bring it on. You know, I mean, just pursue that because really, I don't think any of us know how how deep that gift is that's within it. And they might be surprised, you know, as they push forward on that. I, I know I have been, you know, it's time. So it sounds like you had that desire yourself as a kid. Uh, you were fortunate to get some formal training and I imagine when you were a kid, you're 12, you can't really judge whether that training is good or not. Or do you remember at a young age feeling like, wow, like this is really solid training? Or did you come to that conclusion later in life when you saw other people that had maybe been trained in, in less well uh, ways? There are things that I was taught when I was 12 that I use today. Yeah. And so it, it, looking back, it was actually good, solid training, but you're right. You never know. And I will also tell you that... Uh, just as anything that's out there, you know, you can make a list of what people endeavor to do. Uh, there is also uh, poor training that's out there, you know. And so uh, I was fortunate that I actually got some good training, you know, and I'm grateful for that to this day. You know, you, just, you never know. But uh, what happened, so back when I was, uh, we'll say in art class, back old, 12, 13, whatever, all that, the gal that was training us, she was commissioned by James Drury, who was the star of the Virginian, which was a huge Western show back in the day. And uh, James Drury had commissioned her to do a portrait of his uh, Appaloosa horse. And uh, she had this huge painting she was working on uh, within her studio while she was, uh, of course, uh, she would set that aside, the brushes aside to train us. So she was the real deal. And, you know, I just, uh, I, again, I'm, I'm grateful that that happened. Because like you said, you never know. Now, was uh, your mother or your father, were they artistic at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say my dad was a great doodler, but no. My mother was probably, uh, I would, she was, she was actually great at drawing. And I would, just as a kid, I was like five years old or whatever. And I would just 
ask her to draw stuff, you know, and sit and watch her for hours, you know, because I thought she was so great at it. And so I, I think I was always fascinated by it. There's always, it feels like there's a, you know, some people would say there's a bit of magic in it all, you know, where you, when you, you're drawing and things, and all of a sudden this thing just appears, you know, on paper or canvas or whatever, you know, and it's, uh, it's kind of wonderful in some indefinable way, you know, and I would say that I was captivated and fascinated by that at a very early age, you know. Now, how far away is Balboa from San Diego? So Balboa Park is actually right in the heart of San Diego. What happened, I want to say it was like 1915. They had the Pan Pacific Exposition here in San Diego. And they built this park right down in, in it's right, it's on the hill that over, basically just about overlooks Lindbergh Field, you know, the airport and the city itself, you know. And because uh, the city is set down more with all the skyscrapers and so forth, closer to San Diego Harbor. Balboa Park is kind of perched up on that hill. And it's really glorious. San Diego, the San Diego Zoo is in it. And air and space museum and all kinds of stuff but the buildings were put together in uh, i want to say it's 1915 and they were such a hit that they kept them and in fact have restored the buildings and the museum of art for san diego is there uh, just just museum of uh, history is there just all kinds of things that are really uh, fabulous you know and they're just it's this a spanish revival uh, architecture with colonnades and so forth and it's just uh was it a long drive like, though for your mom every day every saturday from where we lived it was probably yeah well from where we lived it was uh probably uh you know probably half an hour each not way, too bad which but still that's not that, too bad that's pretty that's a big sacrifice if she would she drop you off and then come back or would she hang out there that's with a, you that's another great question you no know, she would pick her bring a book and read <laughs> I mean, that's that's I, I brag about my mom all the time just because, you know, I would say that I, I, I don't even know how you pay something like that back, you know, that commitment. But, you know, it's interesting because uh, you can take other people. We'll say I'm experiencing a level of success. OK, uh, you can take other people that will say have experienced success on some level and measure. Very often. You, and it's not just their mom, but very often. You know, uh, it's it's their mom or someone like that will go ahead and get in behind him. I think it was Tiger Woods' dad used to take and uh, help him, you know. And so it's really someone that comes in alongside of you, we'll say, or behind you and really promotes you and tells you, oh, you can do this and so forth and really helps, you know. And uh, I don't, how do you ever, how, how can Tiger Woods ever adequately thank his dad for what I hear his dad did for him, you know. And, and so that's off to his dad. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I think, I mean, it, there are stories like that. It's more common to know about that today, but sometimes we look at people that have success and don't realize that there's often, yeah, one or two people very close to them that have pushed them in huge ways and, and been there. Yeah, sometimes you'll, you'll hear stories too, where it's a high school teacher yeah. or someone, you know, and they, and they'll give them encouragement and they'll, and very often that, that encouraging phrase or sentence or whatever will live in the person's mind and give them a level of uh, that help change their self-image you know where they can think they actually can do it you know and very often they do you know it's uh it's pretty neat you know people uh, i would say that people's lives can be changed by uh, by uh, people that come in and encourage them you know and it doesn't have to necessarily be their mom or dad but you know people can come alongside like i've said and really Usher them into what uh, they is something wonderful.
Now, when you were 12, 13, before you started doing commission portraits, were you already having that sort of identity settle in? Like, I, I'm good at this. I can do this. Or was it just kind of a fun, you know, hobby? Like, it's just like a kid loving something they was doing. Yeah, you know, that's also a great question. Uh, I'll tell you a very funny thing that um, some people may not get, some will. But when you when you have something that's a gift and you're naturally good at it, and of course there's work along the way, I'm not, you know, I'm not denying that, but I'm just saying, you know, it's just, it's it's relatively easy. That was what happens, you don't know it's that hard for other people. And so you, you start to think anybody can do this. And it was funny because I would take, you know, my attorney friend aside for a moment, I would take other people. Of course, I'm in these art classes. I was in art class in high school and course as well. But I would take and people would say, well, here, teach me. And I would begin to try and show them and try and come alongside them and teach them and show them how to do it. There was no way. I mean, they just were not going to pick it up, you know. And I thought, no, 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 wait a minute. No, let me, let me just show you, you know. And I, I just didn't understand why they weren't, they weren't getting it. Maybe it was, maybe I just wasn't a very good teacher. But the point is, it wasn't happening, you know. And, and sometimes that, sometimes that happens where you, but my point is when something is naturally, we'll just say naturally, easy for you to do you don't know it's naturally easy for you to do until later on and people start to tell you this stuff well i think you're this and i think and you kind of go you blow it off and well sure i don't know because you're just being yourself and you're just doing your own thing and you don't really comprehend uh maybe what's in you and so i and the risk here and this happened to me the risk is you start to take it for granted because you just figure, well, it's it's no big deal, you know, and and so you don't really maybe pursue it with the, the passion that uh, that it warranted. And I'm I'm saying that because I think it was I think it was Frank Dubinek, I hope I get his name right, uh, who was a uh, I think his atelier in France. And I hope again I get all this right. So Dubinek uh, had a sign over his. Uh, his you know the entrance into his atelier he said no genius is allowed <laughs> because you know come in with a humble heart and humble mind you know so you can remain teachable you know because that's really what each of us needs to maintain you know a teachable heart you know uh but on the other hand you need to want to be taught you know you need to have that drive to excel and learn and never give up and and have all the stuff and I'm not, I'm not sure that's automatically there. You know, there are a lot of people like in motocross and, and other things too, uh, that just like art will say was relatively easy for me, say motocross was relatively easy for them. I've got a very good friend who was world famous actually at one point. And, uh, he, uh, just, I, just everything that guy did, it just, he just was naturally fast and just, just astonishing astonishingly good at what he did but i would say that uh he also went ahead and just kind of fell back and didn't have that hunger and drive to continue to improve you know which i think is necessary you know where he just kind of took it for granted and there's risk for all of us with that it's an interesting insight because um yeah i think i think a lot of people will probably relate to that uh 
we find something that we can do and it comes easy to us. And for some reason, we think that work or whatever we do in our career should be hard. And so that thing that comes naturally, you kind of put aside or you don't, you don't even inspect it unless somebody points it out to you or, or encourages you or helps you see those dots like you've had um, in your experience. Can I speak to that? Yeah. So here's the deal. I think, I think work should be hard, actually. Uh, and what I mean by that is what I, I'll just say, you know, we'll, we'll say I'm doing a painting today. It's not easy. What I do, I feel what I, well, I, what I do is hard. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, uh, we should go ahead and push the envelope, I think, every day, all the time during the course of our lives, where we're always doing the hard stuff. And there was one guy, I hope I get his quote right. If we, uh, if we do what is, if we do what is uh, hard, our, our, our life will be easy. And if we do what is easy, our life will be hard. And so I really, I really think that we should take and, and keep pushing rather than relax back into this complacent mindset where we're not continually trying to get better. I want to be, I want my next painting uh, that I'm going to do, I want it to be better than my last painting. Norman Rockwell used to say that. He said, my next painting is going to be my best one. That's a great place to, to be so that we can take, and really what that infers is that the next painting is going to be harder than the one that he just did. And I really embrace that. I really feel that that's how I try to keep myself, uh, my, you know, oriented growing. mindset. Yeah. And yeah, humble. Because I want to, I want to, I want to be better tomorrow than I am today and on and on. And I, I have systems in place to go ahead and help me try to do that, you know? No, I love that. And I think that that resonates with me. Um, and I think, yeah, hard and easy might be the wrong words. It's that, um, I don't know, there, there are certain paths that are more conventional, right? And we have this pull and drag to them. But if you have a natural gift or there's a certain thing that you can do or you get into a flow state or it comes, quote unquote, easy to you, figuring it out how to identify that and then lean into it and then reach the frontier of that. So you're challenging yourself in that thing that's more of a natural talent. I think that's um, not everyone gets that opportunity or has the awareness of that or they they just put that to the side. So that that's what I was wanting to call out. And I feel like it's cool that you've been able to um, lean into what you were doing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. There was a guy, I can't remember the book right now. It's a, just really a fabulous, I think it's called Atomic Habits. I think that's the book. And, uh, I would, I would, I would recommend that book to anybody, but it really has to do with incremental improvement. It's Atomic Habits because Atomic is in small, tiny, right. tiny improvements. Have you read the book? Uh, I've it's heard a, great things. I think I've, I've heard yeah, some of the ideas. Yeah shockingly good but anyway the point is uh you know it's little small changes done incrementally over time can produce huge uh, improvements and i would say that has been the case with me and i believe it's in that book uh, we'll say it is where he talks about basically what you want to do is there's this kind of sweet spot as far as improving and he said it hovers right around four <laughs> percent so if you're going to try and make a pain, my next painting better we'll say and I don't know how you could quantify this 4%, but we'll say someone can. You know, ideally, my next painting is 4% harder, tougher, better, whatever. We'll say more difficult to do than my last painting. And what that does, that 4% uh, is enough to create a challenge, but not discourage you because it's undoable, you know. And so there's that forever growth within yep. that small that small percentage. And it compounds massively if you do that. Oh, it's... it's 
it's shocking. I've I've really uh, been very wonderfully blessed to take and watch the, those incremental improvements mount up, you know, and where things that would have been incomprehensibly tough to do, we'll say 10 years ago, uh, those things are in fact relatively easy uh, today for me. Nice. And then there are other things that are still ahead of me that are hard. So don't get me wrong, it's still not quote easy, but there are things that were hard that now have in fact become easy because of what we're talking about. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, and the, another thing that comes to mind on this topic, I think it's like, there are certain things that, when you're painting and you're working on this work, does it ever feel like play to you? Do you think in terms of play? You know, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, I go on artist date where I artists date uh, dates, which I think I've talked to you about before, but the point is, so that can feel like playing that childlike place. You know, you try to reawaken to, uh, avoid an artist block and things like that, you know, a writer's block in a way uh, for an artist. But, you know, for me, I, I found a very funny thing, you know, because I made the jump to be a full-time professional around 11 years ago. And so, um, I'm saying that because you find some of the darndest things out about yourself. There's a huge difference between being a night and weekend painter or artist and being someone that every day, you know, no paintings, no money, you know, and so you really have to figure things out. And what I found out about myself is that all I have to do is get a brush in my hand. Get that dumb. And you just, you take and you just come up to the painting and it's, some of them are pretty daunting. I mean, I'm working on a five-foot-tall painting right now that's very complicated. But I found that if, I, if I'll just get a brush in my hand, all of a sudden something comes up. Is it fun? Uh, <laughs> maybe it is. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's almost like something rises up within me that starts to, we'll just say enjoy the process. Let's just put it that way. And where, and it also becomes something that is... Uh, is in fact doable with that brush in my hand. Start just making those strokes, and and I think maybe it's that flow state you, you suggested. You know that can happen. I don't know. I I will say this: the, the, this right brain, left brain thing is real. It's a very real thing. I had. Uh, uh, if you want me want me to talk about that for just a minute, because it's well, pretty wild. Well, let's um before we get into that, let's actually go back a bit to um when you were 14 and getting those first portrait commissions. I'd love to hear a bit then about that. Do you remember the first one you got? And can you share a bit about that? I don't know that I recall the, the absolute first one. You know, a lot of it is. Was your mom kind of your, your first well, promoter? Course, the proud, the proud mother, you know what I mean? <laughs> Brutal. And so her, you know, her friends and, and she's busy showing my, my, their pastels at the time. And oh, look at this. And oh, well here, maybe, you know, he can do a portrait of little Johnny. And it was always a, photograph out of their wall or something crazy the worst thing to work from you know and you think Mike, like with those sort of pastel kind of uh like you're just a kid you don't know any better (laughs) and you do the best can and next you know more and more people see them and they go wow that's great good job and you're doing these portraits of young kids from bad photographs you know and (laughs) gosh that was i didn't i didn't know how hard that was at the time i was just doing them you know but yeah that's so it's just a word of mouth thing you know and but you'd be surprised You'd be surprised how surprised how fast a word of mouth thing can take off, you know, because portraits, uh, you know, there's just a, there's just always a demand for that, you know. I mean, that's just never gone away. Did it lead you to get a little bit of pocket money? Oh, of course, you know, I was always a bit of an entrepreneur. Entrepreneur, I suppose. No, a funny thing about that, uh, 
getting back to the motocross thing, what happened was I used to race two strokes, you know, which uh, a lot of bikes these days are four strokes. But the point is I'm doing these two strokes. And so I began uh, actually porting. I would take the cylinders off these two strokes and I would change the ports and so forth. And I they build more horsepower and faster. And I would design expansion chambers, exhaust pipes, you know, for the two strokes and put an extra spark plug. We'd, I, we were doing all kinds of wild stuff, you know, to make these uh, motorcycles faster for motocross and desert racing at the time. And, uh, you know, I look back at that and, you know, uh, of course I had my own business and that's more pocket money. And what, we'll was this a different business than the portraits or what, what business is this? That's okay. So what it is, so what happens, a two stroke, uh, has, a, if you take, you've got the cylinder that the piston runs up and down in, yeah. and that actually has, that actually has what they call ports. It's got uh, pathways or passageways for the air fuel mixture to come in and then for the exhaust to leave after the piston after the uh, ignition so did you make those cha changes as a business absolutely radical we built some of the fastest bikes in the country and that was a and, business and for you yeah interesting yeah. and in fact i was i was partnering with a, an italian guy that was here in san diego and i was taking uh i was actually taking uh honors physics in uh, in high school and we were doing all kinds of weird stuff in classes so i started bringing it we were doing smoke chambers and and uh, wave uh wave tanks and all kinds of stuff, you know, cause a lot of the stuff with this is, or a bit off of art right now, but it's still, it was me as a kid having fun with stuff. And so we would take and propagate waves. We would make cross sections of what a, that pathway, what that port would look like. And we would propagate waves down that, you know, and, and back and forth, because a lot of it is actually driven by sonics. And so with a two stroke and there were, and of course, like I said, we would do, we built smoke chambers and we would actually watch the smoke flow out, uh, into the, uh, combustion chamber out of the porch and so forth. And we're, we're redesigning all these things and we're making <laughs> fast motorcycles from that and having a good time. And I guess I'm saying that because that also is exercising, you know, to take and get in there and grind away metal and reshape those, uh, the, ex the sections of the, uh, where the gas air air fuel mixture enters into that combustion chamber and so forth. It's kind of artistic, you know, and, uh, and hard to do, you know, and, but it was, uh, something I did. And, and how did you get into motorcycle mechanics? My dad used to be, uh, my dad was a, a huge race car guy. We, our family used to, he, he, my dad used to own grand national stock cars. And so I was raised around racing all the time. And so, I mean, I had a, I had a dirt bike by the time I was, uh, I was 13, you know, I had a dirt bike, had many bikes and all the rest, you know, it was just this kind of mechanized deal. My dad used to, my dad, uh, before he got into Grand National Stock Cars, used to have, uh, he was a track champion out here in the East County of San Diego at a, uh, a stock car uh, track and so forth. He was, he was the guy and so forth. And uh, anyway, so it's all this, I'm always around all these mechanized things and everything. And of course I've got horses too, uh, you know, I've, Got my first horse when I was, when I was nine and, uh, you know, we, our summers were camping up in the mountains with the horses and, and all that. Of course, like I said, there's a huge Western element out here in the East County. This, I mean, it's, it sounds complicated, but it wasn't, it's just, you know, where we lived was kind of a horse community. Uh, and it doesn't sound complicated. Also, it sounds fun. It sounds like you had a lot of, you know, interesting hobbies a, and would, pursuits that not every kid has grown up. <laughs> I was spoiled. I, I, I have to tell you, I had a great, 
I had a great childhood and I'm grateful uh, to my parents for that because my dad worked very hard, you know, to take and provide for that because we'd get a, of course, you know, we're basically 25 minutes from the coast. So I went to the beach last night. So I'm kind of sunburned <laughs> a little bit, but the point is yesterday afternoon, the point is it's like 25 minutes away, big deal. So we're dead. I mean, I'm just a kid. We're down at the beach. I mean, I'm surfing and body surfing, whatever is growing up at the beach as well. My parents would rent a beach house for two weeks every summer. So we're up in the mountains, camping in, uh, camping in the Cuyamaca Mountains here in San Diego and all the right, California riding and hiking trails that they had back then. So we're doing that for you know a few weeks, we'll say. And then I've got a few weeks, this is all during the summer, and then I've got a few weeks at the couple of weeks, we'll say, at the uh, beach where we actually had a house there. Never took off our swim trucks other than take a shower maybe. And, and just ran around the whole summer and had a good time. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought that was normal. It's not, it just felt like you said, it's just fun. And uh, anyway, and so motocross got to be a big deal. In fact, it's interesting. Did you ever think going down that path more like getting into either racing yourself professionally or making bikes for professional racers or anything like that? You know, that's a great question. I, um, I think what happens, I First of all, I would, I've, 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 I still, I still have, there's like a first, the first race that I ever won. It was a desert race. I still have the dumb trophy from that thing. So, you know, I mean, I was successful. I was strolling my horse. I've got the trophy from winning that thing, you know, and I've, I've got still have mementos, you know, from, from that, those aspects of my life. But, you know, it still comes down to what do you, what are you really good at? You know, and it, and it's, I mean, I'm winning at this stuff. But it still didn't measure up to what I could do with art, if that makes sense. Just because it was just one of those funny deals, you know, where as great as I was at some of these other things, I was simply better at doing this art. It was just, I, I just, you know, I, it, it was always, well, I, I was usually the, I took, I'll, let's do it this way. I went to a workshop probably 25 years ago with this brilliant Armenian painter. And, uh, he saw me, he saw me, I'm working at my, this workstation I've got. And he walks up to me and he says, who taught you how to draw? Well, no one taught me how to draw. Not really. I mean, a lot of it's just figuring it out and there we go. And he was blown away. And I thought, well, that's high praise, you know, and I was grateful for that, but I'm just saying that it's one of those things that I was always good at. And, and so as a result, you know, you tend to gravitate toward that because it seems like an easier path. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you just, have, you take the easy route. <laughs> at least at the time, it seems, seems more easy, perhaps. Yeah. Over time it yeah, changes. And isn't that the truth at the time, you know, and then everything else, you know, now, there's others that's peripheral to that, that, you know, is part of it. Yeah. And did you end up going to college at all? So I did. What happened was uh, when I was uh, 17, I decided, at the, I, you know, because you got to figure out what you're going to do. And so I decided I'm going to be a full-time artist. And so we, uh, we went to the uh, art college, uh, art center, College of Design. It was actually in Hollywood at the time. It's since moved to Pasadena, but at the time it was in Hollywood. And it was going to go to that. There was a Chouinard, uh, the Chouinard School of Art, we'll say, and that was actually bought by Disney uh -huh. and has a different name on it now. But but uh, anyway, I decided to go to the Art Center, and uh, they had their curriculum and their requirements and whatever, all the stuff, and so I'm getting prepared for that. And so 
<clears throat> from 17 to 19, I just went, went to a junior college and got the GED out of the way that they required. They've got, you know, because then I was going to make the jump. So did you skip senior year of high school? I didn't. Uh, I probably could have, but I, I didn't. Uh, my the senior year was almost nothing but fun because I was the guy, you know, I mean, they were, it was funny <clears throat> for a, for a period of time, they actually had this, they'd have competitions. Who's going to take and create this brochure and do this or whatever, you know, they're done for the school. And I kept winning the dumb things. And so they said, well, Mumber, just, can you do this? And I was the guy, you know, and so all that, and it really was a bit fun. And so I was, I was actually a senior standout, which, you know, doesn't mean a whole lot these days, I suppose, but back then it did, you know? And so I was a senior standout and I was voted the most creative in the class. Well, okay. That's, that's kind of a neat thing, you know, but the point is it was just my senior was, was really pretty easy and fun, you know? And, and so, uh, anyway, so I ended up in, uh, in, uh, in a junior college, you know, up until I was 19 and then, uh, and then, cause I know you're going to ask me, so I'll just go for it. Yeah. You know, what, what happened next? So, so what happened was 19, Basically, my parents lost everything, you know, and so I went ahead and I was poised to go to the art center and didn't. And uh, went ahead and just made a choice to step in and help them, you know, uh, rebuild, you know. Uh, Can you share more about that? What sort of, uh, were they, was your dad in business or what happened exactly? Yeah, you know, I don't know that I want to get into too many details about Sure. But uh, he, he actually, he owned a Ford dealership, which he sold you know, and uh, stuff just happened that, uh, you know, was a crusher. And out of that, he actually ended up keeping the uh, collision repair uh, facility out of the store, sold the franchise and went ahead and kept the body shop. And they, he had, my parents had $1,500 to start that body shop with, which is nothing, you know, really. And, uh, and so I went ahead and stepped in. There's of course more to the story, but the bottom line is that I stepped in began helping them with uh, trying to rebuild all that stuff. And uh, the problem was I, I went in and worked with them and I stuck around too long. <laughs> what was that? So, what did it feel like at the time? I mean, you, you were on this path and then um, to do that, was it something that, did you have maturity at the time to say, I got to step in for my family. You're, you're happy and grateful to do that and, and participate in that way. Or was it something that you had mixed feelings. I don't about. think I was happy. And, I don't think I was happy and grateful. I just felt the burden the duty. to do it. You know? Yeah. And, and I think that's fine. I, I'm not taking anything away from that. I'm just, it's just something that you just choose to, you know, but I don't know that I found joy in it, you know, but on the other hand, you know, you still have this, you know, a dream is a funny thing, you know, they die hard, you know? And so what happened was, you know, my weekends and uh, evenings on some level became consumed with, uh, with, course you know doing art and there i am and a funny thing happened because uh i'm so i've got this dream i've got to go to the art center college of design and be a full-time well that's going to launch me out to be a full-time artist okay good well that didn't happen well here's my mom again my mother takes and shows me an article out of the newspaper oh there's this guy that's got this academy that he, he just opened up in downtown san diego okay, <laughs> so i think i'm out like 21 or something and so anyway i went uh, went down there and come to find out, I can say this honestly, looking back, he was probably, he was easily one of the best uh, art instructors in the country. And he just ended up here in San Diego, out of Chicago. And there's quite a story behind him. But the point is, he took, uh, he had this regular school, the 
ability was, you know, he had, but he ended up taking four young guys and I was one of them. And he took four young guys and he mentored them. You know, in other words, it's not just you're in the classroom. I mean, you're actually getting mentored, you know, and the stuff. What's he was the difference me, between those two in your mind? Well, I'll give you one example. So for example, <clears throat> well, <laughs> We traveled to Spain together, you know, so, I mean, you know, we went through uh, the Soros Museum and the Prado and all kinds of stuff. And so that was part of it. But I'll give you an example, you know, before that. So uh, as far as just structured hours, I mean, I'd be at his, his place, you know, at various hours. And so one time he's trying to teach me something and I'm just not getting it. Yet. And he says, oh, just a minute. And he had one of the most radical libraries of art books and, and stuff that I'd, I've, I've still ever seen. I've never seen anything like it. And he had these towers of books uh, in his library. He said, just a minute. And so he walks over, he grabs a book out of the top, brings it back, says, here, sit down. And so I sat down in this kind of overstuffed chair and he turns, he's got this book and he turns it around, he opens it up and he puts it in my lap. He says, here you go. And he start. he's trying to make the point that he'd been trying to teach me, but you know, pictures worth a thousand words. And so he's trying to impart that information before I get this thing in my hands. And I mean, I've never seen a book like this before. And so I'm looking at this thing and I'm, and I'm going, I think it was Alex. I said, Alex, I said, uh, how old is this book? He said, oh, it's from the 1600s. And I, <laughs> I didn't even want to touch it, you know? And so it's from the 1600s. And I said, how much is this thing worth? Now you have to understand this is, gosh, this is, I don't know what this is. This is 40 years ago or something now. But the point is, uh, I said, uh, you know, uh, what's this thing worth? He says, oh, probably $5,000. So I've got this $5,000 art book from the 1600s in my hands to make a point to teach me about something. That is hard to find. That, that level of training is hard to find. And so that's probably a good example of the difference between being mentored and just, you know, just running through a classroom with 35 other uh, students, you know, as an example. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. How long did that relationship last? Long time until he passed away. We became good friends. And he was a real rascal. I mean, a lot of people don't like this guy. And with good cause, you know, he, he was like hugging a cactus, you know, but, but he, but I loved him, you know, and, uh, I appreciated him and, and just, uh, you know, he, he was just wonderful to me, you know, and anyway, he was, uh, gosh, it was probably, I don't know how long that lasted, probably 17 years or something like that. Long time, you know, but I'm locked in at the, at my parents' business, you know, and so, you know, I'm trying to live this, there's this duality within my life, you know, I'm going to be this kind of artist and, and I'm actually in galleries and I'm, uh, while you're working in your parents' business, you're getting some success in the in the art world. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. I'll give you an example. So it was interesting because uh, there's a gallery, probably the best gallery in San Diego at the time, opened up, and there's a story about how I got it that I don't know that I need to cover right now. But the point is, I ended up in the gallery, and they wanted to have a one man show. Well, I'd never had a one man show, and I'm working full time, you know, and I've got a wife mortgage it's, you know it, it, there's this financial burden on me that 
I think is fine, you know, but on the other hand, it's there, you know, and so I've got to go ahead and maintain that, that pressure, you know, to go ahead and keep that money coming in. Okay, good. Well, then we need 35 paintings for this show. Oh, okay. So I ended up, I would do a painting, you know, it's funny because I didn't have room. I've got a pretty good size studio right now. I didn't back then, but uh, I would take and uh, do a painting and I would take it down to the gallery and they had these racks that they could store paintings in, you know? And so I would take a painting down just so they could store it for the show. There you go. There you go. Catalog those paintings. And the gallery would sell the painting. And I, and I finally, I went back and I said, listen, you're killing me. I, I said, how am I going to have 35 paintings? I said, you're selling them as fast as I'm making them. How about you just knock that off? Because I'm not going to, there's only so much of me and I can't you know, pull this off unless you slow down. And so anyway, they went ahead and, uh, oh, okay. And, but still by the end, I mean, that's winding down where I've got it deals a deal. And so I've got, I've got to try and put, put together, you know, 35 paintings. And I think the last week and a half, two weeks, I would, Harry, I would, I would work till, well, let's do it this way. I would, I would come home, put in eight, 10 hours, and then I would come home, grab a bite to eat or whatever. And then I would paint all night. And then paint until six o'clock in the morning. Wow. And then sleep for an hour. And uh, get up at seven and, you know, get ready the best I could and fly off to work and be there by eight. And so, you know, it was crazy. And I couldn't you can only last do long. that so long. You can only do that so long. And of course, I was a lot younger than I am now, but the point is, I did it. And, uh, I mean, that'll ring you out. And so, but the point is, and a funny thing happened too that surprised me. You think like something like that would just smoke you into the ground. At the time, it didn't. Because there's there's the, almost this euphoric thing that's endorphins. I can't tell you the physiology, but I will tell you, I did experience it. And so what happens, especially if the painting turned out to be a winner, you can tell when you're doing them. And so if you're putting out winter after winter after winter, uh, you 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 just don't feel the level and measure of fatigue that you probably should. I didn't. And I was surprised by that, you know. But uh, the point is, I went ahead and did that. Of course, you can collapse later. <laughs> you know, but had the one-man show. It was very popular and huge success. And we sold, we actually sold paintings uh, internationally. And uh, it felt like a bit of a success, you know. But the problem is, they were largely small and uh, not... Uh, you know, it wasn't like I was selling paintings for 20 grand, you know. And so the the level of revenue it would take to make, allow me to make the jump just didn't, wasn't there. It didn't happen. When they were selling the paintings as fast as you were making them, did you ever suggest to them, why don't we raise the rates? Or was that ever something that you thought of? Nobody knew about me. And so it just, uh, that's a great point. Good businessman. <laughs> uh, no, it is. That's great. Uh, the only, the only thing I would say about that is that they were, they were basically, because of course nobody knew me, knew about me, and uh, they're basically trying to introduce me into the market. You know? I see. And as, as such, you know, you just you start small, and then ideally, of course, you grow. And so they kept the prices down uh, from that. But uh, it was funny because out of that, there was a gallery in London that wanted to carry my work, and there was one in Naples, Florida that wanted to carry my work, and all kinds of stuff. And uh, like a dummy, I didn't pursue that, you know, but. 
anyway, so I just, I, I just ended up still, you know, going back and going to the, my parents' business every day and working through that. I ended up, I was, I was manager. I became the manager of that for, I was the assistant manager. Then I became the manager for 20 years. I ran the thing and we, we got big. Was this the, uh, the Ford company. dealership? This is the body shop from it. Okay. It was an independent body shop, and we were in the top one half, one percent in the country as far as size and and uh, uh, profitability and in gross sales and whatever all that. We had a half an acre under roof, and we had we had uh, twenty. There were twenty. I had twenty three twenty two employees. Wow. Under me, under me, and uh, we were doing work for we were doing work for uh, six different new car dealerships. And uh, we were the highest rated customer satisfaction indexed uh, body shop in the seven Western United States. Independently, uh, it was independently surveyed by the top insurance company in the country. And so we were really doing a fabulous job with all that, you know. And uh, anyway, so that was good, you know. It it was, it was uh, I hate to do anything bad, you know. And so it just, it was, just figured it out. And it wasn't just me, of course, a lot of people are helping. What were some of the lessons you learned about sales and marketing or uh, customer service from that experience? All all business is relational. I would I put that on my tombstone. All all business is relational. I mean, if you have a relationship, uh, it, it's just and there are different varying degrees of that. You know, I would submit that you know Toyota. Uh, has a relationship with their customers, even if they've never talked to a factory rep or all the rest, you know, we'll say they bought themselves one of those little Toyota trucks that never died, you know, that they really, I would say, built their business with. That still built a relationship in the client's hearts toward Toyota, you know, and what they, how they look at Toyota and so forth. Okay, so there's kind of a relationship there and so forth, you know, and gosh, you know, they, what's this called? Oh, that's right. That's a, that, that's a Camry. Hey, honey. We sure the truck doesn't die. I think we ought to get a Camry. Okay, and then the relationship grows, but it's all relational, and and there are varying aspects of that too. You can take and have. I mean, I I know Toyota factory people, people that actually work for Toyota. I was in focus groups with Toyota. I was helping them uh, actually design and build software uh, for one of their divisions and so forth. You know, and so you know, great company, but. It's still relational. You know, what are your relationships? And I would say that's, uh, you probably know that better than anybody, you know, because I would say a lot of what you do is relational marketing, isn't it? Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think um, it's really good to hear you say that because um, for folks who are new to business, if they haven't examined this and thought about it much, uh, there's so many businesses that they engage with um, where they buy products and services and if they want to, it can be very transactional, right? They never talk to anybody. You buy something on Amazon and whatnot. Um, and, um, but if you're one, especially when you're selling things that are higher ticket things, like a car, like a Camry, any sort of considered purchase, um, there's a relationship there. And even if it's a small thing, like, you know, your, your favorite brand of toothpaste or something like that, at some point, you know, maybe your parents, your parents, parents, someone, uh, decided to try that brand of toothpaste out and then, they bought it for the house and you used it and you have a relationship because they had a relationship with it. And so you can always trace it back whether you observe it or not. And it's good to like kind of cultivate awareness of that. And I think it's um absolutely true in the art world. Um, so much of what people are buying when they buy art is like, did they know, like, and trust the artist? Did they feel like um, 
They like the artist's story, the why behind them, the artist and the piece. So um, definitely, definitely with you on that. Well, I'll give you, we'll leapfrog here forward for just a moment. We can go back wherever you want to go on the continuum, you know, on the timeline. But the point is to affirm what you're talking about. I have uh, one of my galleries is actually going to take an, uh, it's coming to San Diego. Uh, one of the directors is coming to San Diego and meeting uh, a high-end client here in San Diego to come to my studio and uh, basically take a studio tour, we'll say, you know, and get to meet me. And he's already spent a bunch of money on my art. And so, gosh, I'm happy to open the doors to my studio and, and invite him in and talk to him and so forth. But it, it really has to do with that relational thing that we're talking about because they, they, there's a curiosity, especially with artists, my goodness, you know, people are forever curious, I would say, about, you know, how artists produce what they do and uh, how they look at the world, we'll say, on some level and just all the rest of the stuff that goes with it. But uh, non-artists definitely so that, feel like artists have some sort of unique wisdom or access to truth that, you know, they don't have or there's some sort of perspective that's useful artists bring to the world. Thank you for that. I would, I would say that I didn't kind of like not knowing that you've got a gift, we'll say, right? It's something's easy and you don't know that it's easy. You just think everybody can do it and they can't. <clears throat> I didn't know. Uh, first of all, I didn't know people thought that way. Uh, I do now. Uh, secondly, it's true. I, I, will t I will tell you, in my opinion, that's true. Because there are things that I've gone ahead and shared with people I mean, we can just walk around and, and you can see the play of light and the, and the colors and the, the way that our uh, receptors in our eyes react to the different saturations and the, you know, we'll say the, the foliage or whatever that's around us, you know, it's like, and I'll tell them, look at this, look at this, look at this. They are blown away. They go, I've never heard of that. I didn't understand, blah, blah, blah. And they said, well, it was taught to me, you know, uh, a long time ago. And that's just one faceter aspect of that. So there is a bit of uh, an element of hidden knowledge to some of this stuff that a lot of people just don't know. But, you know, if it's, it's like there's risk. And I, I'm going to say this applies to me. I, I hate to say this, but I'm going to. We're all at risk of sleepwalking our way through, you know, another day. Now, I'm very alive and awake to my, my, universe of art we'll just say okay i'm activated uh, i'm alive and in tune there you go but i would say there are other parts of my life this is what i hate to say that i'm i'm less activated and awake to we'll say and there's risk that i'm kind of sleepwalking my way through those aspects of my life and again i don't even put that out there and speaking it out but i i, I think it's fair so you know and i would i i suspect other people in their own way are doing the same thing so for example Someone's a, a very good, very well-to-do at one thing, very in tune and awake to that. But here's this art over here, and they don't know much about that, and they're not really awake to it, haven't really pursued it too much and so forth. So there's always that opportunity to be awakened in that aspect, you know. And I would say, especially the high-end collectors are very, very much, maybe not just the high-end collectors, but collectors are very much they, they want that. They appreciate that. And, and they too are a little bit blown away when you start talking about some of the stuff that's, uh, you know, listen, the stuff that Alex was telling me, 
some of the stuff that he taught me, I still haven't ever read or seen or it was just, it's information and knowledge that I'm grateful was given to me because it just almost part, it's almost impossible to find anything. And I use it every day. And so it's kind of neat that I had that opportunity. Wow. Um, what else, what other things did you feel like maybe experiences outside of, um, your full-time art career? What, what sort of things helped prepare you for being a full-time artist? Were there any other sales or marketing skills or um, skills in general you can speak to that you picked up over the years that have helped? You want to hear a funny thing. So this is, that's, that's a great point. Of course, you're very good at marketing. So of course you're going to want to know about that. But I would just say that basically, I'll just, the best way that I feel I can answer that. When I would go into the collision repair facility every day, and I mean, I've got a long sleeve, I've got long sleeve white shirts, tie, slacks, nice shoes, the whole thing. You know, in fact, people like, we'd go out to dinner after work or something like that. And people go, well, what do you do? I go, well, I work at a body shop. They'd go, well, you don't look like you <laughs> work at a body shop. Well, I'm talking to dealership owners and, and insurance company managers and, I work on a computer all day and, uh, you know, I mean, what do you, how do you expect me to look, right? <laughs> but the point is, it was like going to war. It was combat every day. It's just how that kind of stuff is. And it's not just that, but I mean, I would say business very often can, can become that. And that's fine. But, but the point is, problem after problem after problem after, I mean, you're, there, there's just this tsunami of problems being thrown at you, at least in that time or in that business. I'm, I've got all these problems coming at me and then solve this problem, solve this problem. Oh, here's another problem. Oh, by the way, solve that one. Oh, you know. And if you solve certain problems, then that begets other problems that you have it to It can. Solve. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It never goes away. But the point I'm trying to get at is that painting and art is very much problem solving. I'm about to make a YouTube video and I'm going to talk about that uh, in part where Really, it's uh, it's solving problems within a painting. We'll say, you know, how do you solve that problem? How do you come up with a uh, an answer? You know, and so if you if you bring that problem solving mindset to your endeavor of being a full time artist, that's a very big deal. And I would call it. Um, tell me if you disagree, but it sounds almost like a like a self starting attitude. Like there was a certain amount of energy, vitality to you approaching that career where things were coming at you, but you just knew you'd have to solve it and you can solve it. And you'd, you weren't sitting back and like letting things wash over you or happen to you. You had a lot of agency in that experience. Does that make sense? Well, that's a, yeah, well, it's, it's yeah, absolutely. But he, let me just say though. So what happened was I went, so, this is, so I go into my, uh, I go into the business. I mean, I've got a company car, keys to the business, the whole thing. I'm the guy. And I went in there and I just went ahead and gave him the keys to my company car, the keys to the business, the whole thing, and had one of the guys that worked there give me a ride home. So I walked in that morning, the manager of the business running everything. And I left without a job that day. And uh, came home, no pension coming in. Everybody says, oh, well, you retired. No, I didn't. And so there's uh, no pension coming in, no, no, no uh, monthly, no, you know, no monthly income coming in. 
uh, that I could uh, count on forever. And so I went ahead and just just jumped off the cliff, you know, and had my wife's complete support, by the way, which is, was amazing. Because she'd been hearing me talk about being an artist forever and finally just made the, made the jump, you know. And I guess I'm saying that because, you know, there's an old story about, I'm not sure it was the Romans, it doesn't matter, but uh, where they burned their ships, you know, and they, the general or the commander was up on the up on the bluffs, you know, with his army, and he looks down and he says, "Hey, boys, you see all the, the ships on fire down there that we that we landed with, we came on, and uh, they're oh yeah, and okay, well we're not going back on those, <laughs> so it's either win or die, you know, and that's been kind of me with this art stuff, you know, it's either win or die, you know, and it's amazing uh, how much uh, how much fuel that. Where do you think oh, that that, really that fuel, that drive, that um, that courage comes from? Because I think a lot of artists, um, like not all, not all artists for sure, but there's a, a number of them out there where I think it's more like this sort of fun fantasy for them to be an artist, but they really don't have that burn the burn the ships mentality or like I'm gonna make this happen mentality. So where does that come from for you? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Listen, I'm not here to criticize anybody for the, for any of that. You know, if they if they never make the jump. Um, there's a, uh, they call it the terror barrier. You know I mean? If you can take and break through that thing, bust through that terror barrier, you know, and, and make the jump, you know, very often it's remarkable how many forces just mysteriously come around you and begin to support your efforts. I, 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 I started making a list. I, I went ahead and actually made, uh, put together a word doc of all the stuff that was going on. that was just absolutely bizarre. Uh, once I made the jump, you know, that didn't make any sense really, but, uh, very much helped, you know, and I, I just, uh, I, I'm, I wake up grateful every yeah. day hearing. I, I just, that I have the privilege of doing that, of doing that. But as far as, uh, having, we'll just say the guts to do it, you know, I was getting too old, you know, I mean, it's, if you've got this dream since you're 17, and you're killing yourself, helping your parents reacquire their wealth, we'll say, and all this stuff. And and you look around one day and you go, I, I'm running out of life. You know, I, if I'm going to live this, quote, dream, I better off my heels and make it happen. And I, and I did. And, you know, and it's, it, listen, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But it's surprising how many things, like I've said, how many things come around and support what you're doing. It's there's also I'll just say this too. Because it tends to be a bit rare, people are they want to help. Pe people will come alongside you and begin to try to help you. So I'll, I'll give you one example. This is pretty phenomenal. What happened was <clears throat> When I was in this gallery that had the one man, and I, by the way, I had several one man shows and multiple three man shows, two man shows, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I had a bunch of more, of course, my lifetime. The point in the same gallery. And there was a world famous guy uh, in the gallery. They were selling, he was selling paintings in the Tokyo and London and it didn't matter. The guy was, he's a big deal. And so uh, he, this guy, and then one other guy who was actually a gold medal winning uh, sculptor in the Cowboy Arts of America, they, only, they were the only two full-time artists that I knew uh, here in San Diego. And so, and of course, I met uh, this guy. I actually met uh, 
uh, actually through church. This this guy, the sculptor guy, the mm -hmm. other guy I met through the gallery, the painter, painter I met through the gallery. And so I uh, called them both up and I said, hey, I made the jump. I'm doing this full time. Oh, you'll do fine. They were both encouraging. I thought, well, that was good to hear. And then, okay, bye. So what happened was, this is what's amazing. What, what happened was six months after I made the jump, the painter, this world famous artist, calls me up and says, uh, I'm going to teach you everything I know. Like that. I'm, basically, he was offering to mentor me. Right? In the business side of things? And... No, no, just in the art artistic. side. Okay. He, said, he, says, he says, You're right there. He says, There's just stuff you don't know. That he, and he says, But I'm going to teach you everything wow. I know. Where'd that come from? And so, and so what happened was he's up in La Costa, which is in the North County of San Diego near the coast and a very affluent area. And so I began driving up there and uh, he's got this gorgeous studio and he had these two easels, an easel at one end and an easel at the other. <clears throat> he's painting at one end and I'm painting at the other. And, or you would hire models that we would draw or paint from. Not a penny out of my pocket wow. other than just gas there and stuff. I mean, it was just just gracious, just unlimited amount of generosity and giving into my life, just pouring himself into my life. I mean, you know, that was odd and wonderful and stupendous. And anyway, so the point is <clears throat> he's doing all this stuff. And we actually became friends, you know. And so what happened was he said, you know, I, I'm, we we're talking one day and he said, uh, I think I want to go up and check out a gallery in Culver City up in L.A. That was Howard Hughes stomping grounds back in the day, Culver City. So I said, hey, I'm, I'm in. I'll, I'll come along if you want some company. He said, sure. So I drove up to La Costa, jumped in his Lexus, and we both drove up. And we're on, Here's the point. We're on the 405 freeway. And he knew, he knew the story how what my parents lost everything and then i never got to live my dream of being going to the art center college of design he knew that all of a sudden we're driving along in the freeway he's driving and he looks over to me and he says what year would you have been at the art center if you could have gone and uh, i told him he said i would have been your teacher <laughs> wow because he taught at the art center for eight years and and uh so think about that Tell, explain that, how that worked, how the guy that would have been my art teacher in a classroom with 35 other kids, we'll say all that. Not only did I not go to the art center and get where I was just kind of this cattle operation. It's not, but you get my point. There's a lot of people, a lot of people there and I'm getting run through that thing. Not only did I not do that, I am now being one-on-one -on -one mentored by that guy in his studio. He's talking to me. I can pick the phone up right now and call him up. In fact, there have been times in the past I don't bug him too much these days. But back in the beginning, I would send him comp their comps or comprehensive studies for a painting. I'd send him comps, you know, that I'd create on the computer or whatever. And he'd say, no, 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 move this over here, do this and so forth. And he's critiquing my art and uh, helping me adjust things and so forth. And he, we actually we actually went and... Uh, He's, he had some of these, like, they're almost like Broadway stage lights and so forth. And we took over a 
cowboy restaurant. He came all the way from La Costa and he brought those lights and we had a team and we actually took over a restaurant up in the uh, Cuyamacas up in the mountains here and where they've got brands, actually branded the wood. Everything's all cowboy motif and whatever. And friends of mine with cowboy hats show up there all the time and whatever, all that. And so I had three of my friends show up with all their cowboy, their cowboy hats and shirts and whatever on. And I had them pose and we did a photo shoot, took over the restaurant, had a photo shoot with that guy training me. And so, so you get this guy that he says, no, no. He says, lean the guy back in the chair, have this other guy put his arm around, do blah, blah, blah. And there are two paintings that came out of that that are still some, two of my most popular paintings I've ever done. And so that's mentoring. That, that's someone coming alongside of you, never paid him a penny. I would do anything for that guy, but I never, I've never paid him a penny whatever, all the stuff. And how does somebody make sense out of that? I mean, that's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's, it seems it's a fortunate opportunity. I think there's some, you can call it, yeah, providence or, or serendipity or, or, um, fortunate luck. But, um, you know, I think to dig into this, some like from my outside angle, looking at your story and what you've shared so far, and definitely feel free to disagree. I think the, the, I was asking earlier about, you know, how did you have the courage to step out and, and put yourself out there? I think it sounds like it's, if I could break it down, it'd be one, um, artistic competency. You had some talent that you refined and you got better at, and you had some positive feedback. So you knew that was there. And then you recognize through your business career that all business is relational. So you maintain relationships, you develop relationships, you did the academy, you had that mentor. And then when you decided to take that lead, you put that intent out into the world. You let people know that you cared about, who knew about your story. And then because you let them know, um, they then are wanting to help you out and look out for ways to do that. So um, it sounds kind of obvious, but I think it's just important to, to, to really speak to that because for some folks, they don't necessarily think in that way. So it's useful kind of to break down maybe some of those things that you did. Um, do, you, do you agree? What do you think about that analysis? Yeah, I think what well, I would say that uh, yes, I agree with all that. It's it's interesting because sometimes we don't know when we're in the middle of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, the fog of war in a way, you know, you just, I, there are times when we don't really understand a lot of it's reactionary. You know I mean? Something will come along and you just react as opposed to being proactive. You're more reactive, we'll just say. And so, for example, uh, I went ahead and called this other guy who was a sculptor in the Cowboy Arts of America. So right after I made the jump, he calls me up and he says, hey, we're going to have this uh, professional grade workshop up in Wyoming. And uh, we'd like to have you there. God, I, okay. You know, of course, we didn't have a bunch of money. I mean, at that point, we're just, right, we're just, my income was gone. And so, but we put it together and uh, went and met just some of the top people in the business that were there. And... Uh, they got to see me and they got to see how I painted and just all kinds of neat things happened from that. But that was, uh, that was someone stepping in, helping me get introduced into, uh, it was Western art. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Okay. So that helped. Then, uh, not long after that, that same guy went ahead and picked the phone up and called a gallery owner in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, arguably, the, uh, at the time, the top Western art gallery in, in the country. Okay. 
they had a, they had a gallery in uh, Scottsdale, one in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, he told the gallery owner that uh, they need to see my work. And so I get this phone call. Hey, you know, bring some work over to Scottsdale. Wow. Okay, cool. So I took uh, five paintings over there and uh, they took four of them right out of the spot and sold one of them the next week. And so, you know, that wouldn't have happened without that relationship, we'll say, right? And so there are all these, there's connectivity, you know, and people that you know, and, and of course, you know, bless their heart, you know, these two guys, I'll just use them as an example. They wanted to help me, but it's not just them, but they clearly both made a huge difference uh, for me, uh, you know, at that, at that juncture. And, and I think that's very important, you know, I, I I'll tell you something else, though, too, along that will probably help with that. I've said this. I've got a really uh, sharp uh, uh, director uh, gallery that I was talking to about this. And I'm blown away. I mean, I'm thinking, first of all, why is this guy helping me? Why is this? What about this? And he said, listen, they don't do that with everybody. He said, you need to understand when they get when these guys get to a certain level and women, too, we'll just say. But when these guys get to a certain level, he said, they're looking who they can help because they, they're, they've already hit the zenith of their career, we'll say. And now they're, uh, you know, moving out of what may have been the top of their career. And now they're looking back to see who they can give a hand to and help help out and, and lift up. And he, and he said, both of those guys saw who you were and the promise that was within you and all the stuff because they wanted to go ahead and give you a hand up. While you're working your heart out, you know, trying to be the best you know how, they here, let's let's just give you a hand. And I'm saying it because it's exactly what you're talking about. You know, some of that has to do with these these pillars that you're building along the way, so that you know when those things arrive, your the competency that you're talking about, and you've got these relationships, and on and on. You know, and of course, listen, you work at a collision repair shop for decades. You get used to talking to people. I was going to so say, you've got you've to have tons of experience talking to people, people that are happy, people that are sad, people that are frustrated, customers, vendors. No, it's, right. it's, it's so much it's, training. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody, nobody's happy after, after a car accident. Fair. Nobody's fair, happy fair. after a car accident. <laughs> so you meet people during some of the most stressful uh, hours of their life, we'll say, and sometimes they're hurt, you know, and whatever. It's just, a, it's, you know, someone's brand new car. They just... We had a car. I think, it, I think I it's mean, so important that you're mentioning this because I think it's it's just uh, you have to have that artistic competency. But the fact that you had all that relational experience when you are in that moment where you have to kind of show up and I, I wouldn't think about perform. It's not like you're performing, but you have to be present and open to building a relationship, building a connection, uh, listening out for opportunities, making suggestions like all that. Those, that decade of practice is it's effectively practice. Um or that those opportunities uh, does that make sense well yeah, so when i was 17 we'll say okay here's my 17 year old self yeah. i was so terribly self-absorbed which by the way okay so i'll just talk about me <laughs> so i was so terribly self-absorbed i mean give me an easel give me my paint brushes and my paints whatever the world i don't like people just let me paint in my cave i'm this total perfectionistic introvert you know, and I'm going to go out and pursue this and build it and they will come, which is terrible, a terrible marketing plan. So, but the point is, I, I'm, I'm this guy at 17, right? And of course, what was it? Was it, uh, 
Mark Twain said that when I was 17, my, I couldn't hardly stand be, being around my dad. He was so stupid. By the time I was 23, I couldn't believe how smart <laughs> yeah, he was. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I mean, I, I just thought I was just as brilliant. It's pitiful, I think, back. The point is, I would say that that is not all that uncommon, you know, because I, I think artists in general very often default to being introvert, uh, melancholy. Uh, you know, they want everything perfect. Of course, nothing's ever quite perfect. Yep. But the point is, it's it's this desire to just be a recluse, and here I and am. And it can be paralyzing, that perfectionist leave attitude. Me the, <laughs> leave me the hell alone. Yeah. Okay, so all that's going on. And then you've got this whole other experience, and, and I'm just, I take that, and I'm like just, by choice, I'm thrown into this people business, because that's really what you are. I mean, listen, if you've got 22 employees, <laughs> you know, you talk about interpersonal issues and, and dealing with everything that is involved with that and dealing with all the struggles within, we'll say, a new car dealership and, and all the, and people's cars are in wrecks and just all this stuff. It's very complicated, you know, and it takes people skills. And so over time, you know, you really begin to, I mean, you can, I could walk up to a person or they could walk up to me and I'm intuitively reading their body language and so on and so forth. Just, it just, just happens over decades, yeah. you know. Where you you almost know what's going to come out of the mouth before they say it, and and a lot of that is just happening even without much effort. You know, it just because you whatever's coming out of their mouth, you have to react to anyway. It's like an osmosis because you're just experiential yeah, learning, and, and you're just gonna you're just gonna figure that out just because you kind of have to. And I'm bringing that up because uh, you're right on to think that that has no bearing and no. Uh, that, that that doesn't matter uh, is silly because it does. And so that's why, so for example, we'll see this collector comes to the studio. I, I, I have found, this is, this was a huge transformation for me. I didn't, I did not like the collision repair business per se. I was there to help, but as far as, Oh, I get to go see another direct target. <laughs> that wasn't me. You know, I just, I just did. Sure. What I did find though, is that I love the people. And so I would go to, I would go to work every day to, in fact, you know, help people and help. And that goes for my employees and that went for everybody that I was interacting with. Just, just because I found that I, contrary to the 17 year old dummy, you know, I found out that I loved people and that was a huge transformation for me because, you know, in the world of art, every, every dollar that is going to be spent for you know, one of my paintings is in the hands of somebody else. A human being, right? Like, it sounds funny, but I have to tell like my people, I'm like, sometimes, you know, if you want to make a sale, it's like, yeah, you have, a human being has to choose to voluntarily exchange funds. Someone else has that. Yeah. <laughs> someone else has that darn money. <laughs> and you got to get it out of their hands, you know, and hopefully they love the fact that they're doing right. it. But, but it's still, it on some element, some level, these introverted, and I'm talking about myself, these introverted, don't like people, melancholy, you might fall into depression if you're not careful, whatever, all that stuff, you know, that can be part of uh, being an artist, we'll just say, all that. The practical truth is we have to go ahead and understand, you know, there's there's an interactive level or stuff that has to go on here right. where you have a, you know, you have affection for your audience. And that was, uh, Norman Rockwell used to talk about that. He said that he, he loved people. And this is even if you're doing originals, were, right? If you're doing your own work, you still have to have this sort of, and he said when he would pay people, 
Uh, and I, I would say this applies to me, but when he would paint people, that his affection and his love for the person would manifest in how he ended up painting the person, if that makes sense, you know. And and I, I have to tell you, that's a funny thing. Along those lines, I had a, I did, I did the, the last commission portrait. I've got one in the works right now that I just, I, I did for someone that's spent a lot of money with me. And so I, first commission portrait I've done in, I don't know how many years. But the point is, so I've got one, so I can never say never. But the point is, I did this one painting and the guy, it was a husband and wife and the husband was, he wasn't my favorite person. He earned that from me. I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, it was just, it was hard. And what I found is that, I mean, you have to look at this person and paint them. And by the way, <laughs> I, you know, I told him, I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. I said, I'm trying to make a museum quality painting that just happens to be a picture of you. <laughs> yep. So, so, so I'm really trying to excel and do everything that I know. Everything's coming out of the toolkit here and I'm really applying everything that I know how to try and make something that's excellent. But I found that I, I just, it was tough because I didn't like this poor man, you know? And so, and I had to come to grips with that. And that was actually a huge turning point for me where, you know, I got over that and, and, uh, it was, uh, something I've of course never forgot, but the practical fact is we'll interview models, you know, cause I'm working with, uh, a lot of girls in, in particular, but my wife and all will interview models and so forth. And I have found that I have to, they just about have to be as pretty on the inside as they are the outside, because part of what I'm painting is their, their, that spirit personality, their soul. I don't, I don't sure. know how to quantify it, but it's there. And a, in, an interesting thing too, is that it comes out. If I get someone that uh, we'll just say it's pretty on the inside as the outside, we'll just use that. You know, if they're that way, you th again, you, you think that doesn't matter. Again and again and again, I can tell you stories about how people react to that. And it just kind of comes out. And maybe that's just the way that I'm painting them. I don't know what to say, but it's there. And so... Well, if you feel that, it's there, it comes through, you know? It's that indefinable element, you know? And so... Uh, so it, it's, just, it's just people... Affection for people and having affection for people, especially you're painting them, you know, is great. And then on the sales and marketing end, if you actually love people, listen, people can tell, you know, if you don't like people, if you don't like them and you're just opposed to people in general, don't think that others can't pick up on it because they can't. So, it's, so that makes it, make it. I tough. think it's just a, it's a good thing to, to discuss for a minute. Cause I feel like, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're an artist and, but you've got a, a day job or you've got something you do and you really don't feel lit up by it. Try to figure out a way where you can do your best at it, pour yourself into it. Because I promise you, if you learn how to relate to people, if you look at it and reframe it as practice, it's going to all pour over into your ability to relate to collectors, to potential gallery owners, you name it. And so, um, I don't know, were you, were you conscious of that at all at the time when you were working in your career, uh, business career, or, um, it's just a happy accident. As far as what, understanding that, uh, uh, were you ever consciously reframing, you know, your desire to do things excellently, do things well in the body shop as, Hey, you know what, this will also help me when it comes to dealing with my art clients in the future. That's a great point. I would say no. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I, I had a misconception 
so this is probably important to cover because I sell almost exclusively through galleries. Right. And so, um, and I'm saying that because you, th you, you think, you think that, um, this, this, gee, I don't want to talk to people. I don't like people. And we'll say the 17 year old, uh, Chris Marwick. You think that, well, I've got a gallery and so I'm insulated. And so because I've got this insulated thing, I can be this reclusive hermit through the world, you know, and all that. That is a fantasy. That's a, that's crazy. And, 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 uh, and I didn't, I didn't know that, uh, even though I grew to love people, I still had that mindset that I've got a gallery and so forth. And I'll tell you a very funny thing that's happened. I think it's that it's like delegation versus abdication. Like a lot of artists hope that they can abdicate responsibility to the galleries if they get, get that. That is, that is a, that is a terrible business model. Yeah. And let me tell you, here's, this is a funny thing. So here I am, uh, super, I'm going to be in galleries and, uh, and that's going to work out and I'll be insulated. What I've discovered is uh, the problem with galleries, and I mean no disrespect by this because I work with some fabulous galleries that don't do what I'm about to say. But the problem with many galleries out there is that you are completely insulated from your clients. And and some of that has to do with artists backdooring art to the, once once they meet Frank the Collector, and then all of a sudden, the artist is selling Frank the collector art without going through the gallery, even though really it was a gallery's client. And it, there's no take no. in that. I, I think that's very short-minded, short-sighted. Oh, it's it's stupid. And but but the problem is, some artists have done that, and the galleries absolutely uh, have lived that and feel stabbed in the back and all that. Okay, it's a bunch of bad stuff. But the point is. That would make any gallery go, hmm, we should probably have a business model where we keep our clients over here and we keep our artists over here and insulate that and so forth. Interestingly enough, if they find out that you've got integrity, uh, so I'll give you one example. I'm not saying I'm perfect. That's just not my point. I, what I am saying is that I was contacted by, and, and this this uh, loan commission I'm doing, uh, and this guy got a hold of me and he's actually on my newsletter, just whatever. He's called me and we've talked, but he's not my client. He is the client. Well, let, let's just do it this way. I didn't know. Uh, he, he, we're talking on the phone and I said, how did you find me? And he told me, he says, well, I found you. I think I found you through this gallery. I said, okay, no problem. And so at that point, bam, I thought the gallery is going to get their percentage. Right. It's recognizing that like the gallery established that relationship back to relational sales. And so you, you want to protect that relationship and honor that versus saying, oh, this is a new transaction. Therefore, you know, let me, let, let me tell you one of the biggest things that I learned running the body shop. Business is actually pretty easy. I mean, it's war and all kinds of problems and come up every day with just in any business, I suppose, on some levels that way. Here's the point. Generally speaking, as far as, as far as an overarching philosophy within business, it's pretty easy. You just treat the client the way or whoever, the way you'd like to be treated. So I love great service. You know, I still do. And so I would give fabulous service to my customers because that's what I want. I just think that, that's what I want. So I'm going to give that to you. So it's the same thing here. I get this guy that calls me up. He's going to give me thousands of dollars, you know, whatever, all that's going to happen. And, uh, I thought, oh, gosh, I just now I get to give, you know, a big chunk of that away. I don't care. 
because it's it's how I would want to be treated if the roles were reversed. Yeah. Treat the other people the way that you'd want to be treated. And that takes care of a lot of stuff, you know, uh, in a multitude of ways, you know. And so, uh, yeah, I, uh, anyway, I, I just, uh, the people thing is, is, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's what I found this installation thing. I want to complete that thought. So what happened was I have gone the exact opposite now where I, I, I absolutely want to know what my collectors are thinking, what their, what their desires are. It's this market research thing. And so yeah, last time you and I talked, you shared a lot about that. It was really fascinating. Do you mind sharing a bit about that? Oh, it's, it takes, it takes, I've got two very, I've actually there one gallery has two locations and the other gallery has one location. Uh, and I'm working with both of them in this way right now. And so what happens, so I'll come up with, uh, with a, with a concept and we'll back up and say, so for example, I, I think I want to paint a Vespa, <laughs> you know, where'd that come from, you know? And so I think I want to paint a Vespa. And so I went ahead and, uh, got this, this random shot of this girl sitting on this Vespa, like from the fifties, you know, it's just a charming old vintage shot. And, and most of what I do is set back in time. There's always a bit of nostalgia, I would say to most of my work, you know, right. Okay. And so here's this fifties shot. And so, so, uh, one of my galleries, I went ahead and sent it to the uh, director of the gallery and said, why don't you see what your, what your clients think about this? It's kind of random. So he starts, he calls it shopping. So he starts shopping that image. What do you think about this? Cause listen, the people he's talking to, it's a, it's astonishing. And it's not just him. It's not just that gallery, but I have to tell you, they're not the people I'm talking to every day. And, and so, and he's got these relationships and so forth that he works very hard to maintain. So he starts whipping this thing out and saying, what do you think about this? Oh, that's great. We think that's super. Oh, how wonderful is that? Next thing I know, I'm out looking for a red 1970s Vespa that I take down my, my mom still owns the body shop. And so I took it down there. We went ahead and ran that thing through and made it look brand new. And so I've got this like brand new late seventies Vespa. And I put one way, I say a couple of different girls on it, but anyway, and I had a, I had a blouse. You'll get a kick out of this. I had a blouse made in Singapore. I had, I, I had shoes flown in from Italy. I mean, I, I had a suit, suitcases from France that fit on the back of this thing, all this stuff. It's all assembled from all around the world onto this Italian scooter. And so I went ahead and put together, uh, one painting is already done, uh, after, so, I mean, I've got thousands and thousands of dollars, uh, in, in, I'm, I'm the scooter, fixing up the scooter, buying the props, buying the wardrobe, blah, 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 blah. I do all this without a penny. But I'm encouraged because we've done some pre-market research. Right. Makes yeah. sense. And so then what I'll do is I'll go ahead, I'll do the photo shoot. And mo most, in fact, this next video I'm going to be doing, I'm working on right now for YouTube. Most of my painting, people think I just take a photograph and paint the photograph. I don't. They're welcome to think that. And I'm, I, I don't do that. And so I'll go ahead and put together this composite. That, and it's a comp, right? And, and I'll put that together. And then I'll send that, same deal. 
oh, so here's this Vespa and here's Chris Mummert's version of the Vespa. And I got this girl put on lipstick, you know, while she's looking in the mirror on the Vespa and she's sitting with the ocean in the background, blah, 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 blah. So he whips that on. He starts showing the clients. Oh my God, when that comes in, I want it. You know, so all that starts. So there's all of when this pre-marketing. When he's sharing and, these pre-marketing images, is he, he's attaching your name to it. This is something Chris shared with me or is it without your name? It's absolutely yeah. my yeah. stuff. And, and, and what happens, so let's back up just for a moment because this is probably important for you to hear. This is the number that I've heard. So Wyland, W-Y-L-A-N-D. So he's a very popular artist up in Laguna Beach. There's a lot of uh, whales. He was painting whales in the size of buildings and stuff like that. Just, just amazing stuff. Very successful at marketing. Very successful artist, right? So his deal is he sells seven things to each customer average. Now, maybe one thing is a mug. The thing is a little notepad. Something else is a, three of them are prints. Whatever those things are, it's seven. So that's the average for some are more and some are less. But Wyland said, now this has been a few years ago. This is a pre-COVID number, but I'll, I'll bet it's still, it's, if it's not back up, it's, 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 that's still a good number to remember anyway. So seven. So what happens, so the easiest person to sell something to is someone you've already sold. And so the reason, so this, so someone buys something from Wyland, the next six things on that seven, and the path to seven are always uh, easier than the initial Sure, step. You know that sure, as a market. Sure, okay. So what we purpose to do is to take in, you know, most people, most people, oh, we just sold the payment, yay, bust open the champagne, yay, let's celebrate. No, 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 no. That's the beginning. No champagne, no celebration. That's when the work starts. Because then at that point, then the uh, then ideally that collector might buy another six paintings. Right. So when he's whipping that thing out, right, and showing the thing, hey, by the way, this is what Mummert's working on now. Yeah. Yeah, let's let's I I think I want that. And and he'll show people as an example. And so then I'll go, I'll go ahead and do the painting. That painting. Now, you got to understand, this is an expensive painting. And this thing is five feet, it's 60 inches tall and 44 inches wide. Okay, so this is a big painting. And that painting sold an hour. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really now, smart. And it's, I think it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it reminds me of in the software world, we talk about prototyping or minimal viable products, if you heard any of those, those terms. Oh, yeah. So it's almost like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're iterating. What's, what's, what's the old thing? If you're not, if you're not embarrassed first by your product first launch MVP, yeah. If you're not embarrassed by the first you thing, launched, you've waited you waited too, too late. Um, so I love it. I think, I think there's so much to that. I think the key distinction for those who are listening is that why this is, I think, especially working well for you, Chris, is because you already have that, um, market established for your work. You've got these, uh, people that can kind of plant those seeds, build excitement, build anticipation. They've already bought for you. Um, so that's a, that's a critical thing. I mean. In your opinion, if you were a new artist, you haven't made many sales, do you think this would be a strategy you pursue or what would you focus on instead in that situation? Oh, it's uh, first you crawl, right. then you walk, then you run. And I guess I'm saying that in the context of this because, you know, your first sale is you crawling. And, and, and what I mean by that is that we'll say you make a, We'll say someone's doing commission portraits for, for someone and, uh, which I know you got, you know, some of your uh, audience right. does that. And so we'll say they do that and we'll say, uh, 
an animal portrait, person portrait, whatever all that is. Just use that as an example. Yeah. Um, the best customer that they could talk to about another portrait, whether it's an animal or a person or whatever that is, is the person that they just sold the portrait to. In fact, uh, you know Dan Kennedy? Yeah, definitely. You know Dan S. Yeah. Kennedy? Okay. So Dan Kennedy came up with a, uh, I, 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 I don't even know how many Kennedy books I've read. It's pretty, he's a fascinating guy. Well, for those but, who don't uh, know yeah, who he came, is, to share just a little bio, what type of, what type of guy is he? He's, I'm not even sure he's still alive, but I believe uh, he is. But the last time, is, is he alive? So, yeah. I've, I've seen him. I, I haven't been to any he, conferences, but I see him online attending conferences as speakers and stuff like that. I think he's still alive. Well, I hope that's true. He's a wonderful guy. I got a kick out of him. But he, uh, he is probably, he's arguably the top direct response marketing guy in the country. Uh, there are a lot of people that would say he is. They, they call him the millionaire maker. And in fact, do you know, he doesn't have a cell phone. He you cannot email him. If you want to get a hold of him, you have to fax his only employee that's in Phoenix. And you have to fax this thing and say, can I, can I please, I want to be one of uh, Dan's clients because he lives in Ohio near Cleveland, I guess, because he likes uh, racing horses with the, uh, whatever, I can't think of the name of it. The point is, he's uh, where you sit on the little cart behind the horse. The point is, so he's, he, he lives close to the racetrack because he's, that's his passion. But the point is, you have to go through all of this stuff and then to see if you qualify to be one of his. Sure. He's completely inverted this sure. thing where he's not looking for anybody. People are looking for him. Can you please? And, and it was funny because he was being... Is it Darren Hardy that was Success Magazine? I actually interviewed him years ago. And you should have heard Darren. He's going like, what? you do what? And Kennedy's going, yeah. He says, I don't. He says, you know, people have to come to me and, if, and they have to uh, fax. And they've got all these. He, he goes, listen, he told Darren, he said, listen, nobody wants to talk to the guy at the bottom of the mountain. Everybody wants to talk to the wise man at the top of the mountain. Not the wise guy at the bottom. He says, so I'm purposing to make sure I'm the wise guy at the top. And, and for those you who know, don't know, and, di yeah. direct response is basically a style of marketing where you're running um, a message, an advertisement, a campaign. It could be online or offline. And you're trying to get people to take some action. Maybe it's um, come in for an oil change in a car company. And then they notice, oh, there's other things you need to work on or uh, uh, booking a call or whatever it might be. So he's very he's known for being very good at those sort of direct response campaigns, which are focused on profitability and making sales versus maybe a more branding campaign that's more kind of ethereal in the air and you don't know, necessarily know how it yeah, said, connects he, to your uh, final sales numbers. He said, you don't have enough money for branding. He, he said, and he said, you know, good luck on that because to, to actually quote, create a brand will stay the way that Coca-Cola has or whatever. He said, you don't have enough money for that. He said, and so direct response marketing is basically, we're going to spend X amount of dollars per client acquisition. You know, they, it's all, it's all numbers. Out. You know, so you know what your cost to acquire the customer all number. is. Yeah. So you're not wasting, you're not wasting any money per se. And you can A-B test and all kinds of neat stuff. And he's using snail mail, just all kinds of neat stuff. But the point is he's brilliant at it, you know? And uh, anyway, so I, I just, uh, I'm, a, I'm obviously a fan of Kennedy. I just, uh, and of course I'm not alone with that. But he's uh, he's just been a visionary with a lot of stuff. And what's interesting is that um, 
know, that that's also in me while I take and I talk to people and understand. And by the way, I'm going to say something here, Harry. This is probably important for me to say. The instructional stuff that's in the what, my program, the academy. Yes, but the stuff, especially, and I'm just everyone's got different opinions. This is no, mine, please as far as what spoke what spoke to me. The stuff that is really more psychological and understanding the heart of your client and they're, they're really trying to make better versions of themselves and just whatever, all the stuff that's really a bit more theoretical, we'll mm -hmm. say is powerful, just wonderful. And, uh, and of course you can tell probably while I'm yanking on here that, you know, I've got my, I've had my toe in the water on this marketing stuff for some time and I have never heard, uh, some of the stuff put as clearly and concisely as you have about the mindset of the client. And so great. Thank job. you. That's very you kind. Know, just a, that's, it's true though. And so anyway, I'm not sure how we got off on that. <laughs> I think we were talking about, um, um, just the role of, um, if, if, uh, people and, and interact with people and if, um, uh, the fact that you had that background and how that helped, uh, translate into some of the success you've had as an artist. Um, let me ask you this. Um, so, you started out as a full-time artist about 11 years ago. Were there any like rough moments or parts where you questioned yourself or, um, you know, what were some of the milestones in the last 11 years as you, as you per have progressed from where you started? Well, you know, because see, there's a huge difference between, even though I was trained by the first guy was a commercial artist, right? That when he had left commercial art in Chicago and came out here to uh, San Diego. So, I mean, I was basically trained by a commercial artist. And there, but there's a huge difference between Is this the guy who was uh, under Sonny Hatton? He was, yeah. And a lot of people may not know that, who that is. So, Hatton Sunblown was the guy that did all the Coca-Cola ads. And, and I have to tell you something. the To have the Coca-Cola advertising account back in that era, that was it. I mean, that's that's the biggest account. I mean, because you're in Atlanta, how big is Coca-Cola in Atlanta? So, yeah. So the point is, it was unbelievably big back then in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, we'll say, right? Do you know so he also did uh, Quaker Oats and Aunt Jemima? Did you know that? He did the Quaker Oats guy, which, by the way, they replaced Sonny's painting on the Quaker Oats, and it's not as good, but that's... <laughs> so the point, he, so he's doing this, this fabulous work, and uh, it was all the sunlight-infused upbeat americana-esque yeah and people still get postcards with that on there whatever all the stuff and buy books on it and just and sunny was doing it and he went ahead and uh sunny trained uh some of the some of the top artists in america actually came out from under they were working under sunbloom and one of those is howard chirping and howard chirping is Howard Turpening sold a few years ago, he sold a painting for $1.9 million. And so Howard is the real deal. And Howard uh, was trained or worked under Sunny, under Sunbloom. And you can actually see that sunlit stuff, you know, because sunlight's hard to paint. Sunlight's hard to paint. In fact, I did a video on on uh, how to paint sunlight because I was taught how to paint sunlight. And a lot of people don't know how to do that. And the thing got over 20,000 views and I got, a, I got people commenting from all around the world because sunlight can be tough to pull off. Well, Sunbloom had that nail. And so he passed it on to 
uh, Turpening and Harry Anderson and Gil Algren and all that, and the guy that trained me, Alex. And so that's how it was passed on to me, you know. And so uh, Sonny is a he's a very big deal and uh, internationally famous, you know, really. And he should be just because his stuff is just iconic. He he basically invented the Coca Cola Santa Claus, right. you know. It's funny because later on, as he got older and heavier, he ended up being his own model for the for the Santa Claus. I just uh, talked recently to the archivist at Coca Cola who told me all these stories about. Uh, Sonny. Oh, about Sonny. Yeah. Did you, and you yeah, asked so about that'll, that? So that, that episode will be out before this one airs, but um, fairly fascinating. He talked to me about him, talked to me about Norman Rockwell, uh, talked about um, uh, a lot of stuff that was more kind of ad related, like the the polar bears, you know, and uh, the fiasco with New Coke. But it was really fascinating because he, he this archivist was definitely more out of the kind of sort of museum acad- academia setting and then came into this corporate setting and uh, really uh, transformed their archives. Their archives were not that well put together. And then he basically put it all together, got all this amazing art, original art, acquired some Rockwells and things like that, and then um, made some museums uh, for Coke. There's, some, there's a museum here called the World of Coke, and they didn't know this going into it, but uh, when they created it, now like over a million people will go every year. So there's this amazing kind of interest in Coca-Cola memorabilia. <laughs> that is out there. <laughs> well, you know what? It just, um, it's, it's just so much a part of American history on so many different levels. You know? but, I, but I did, I asked yeah. him, I asked him like, are there any illustrators that y'all work with today or when you retired in 2013? And he said, no, you know, really that, that area, era of Sonny and these other illustrators they worked with was like the golden age was the 1950s, you know? And so, um, I thought that was a little too bad because I feel like they could, Maybe bring back some of that energy and, and work with some top talent today. And well, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny thing because my a lot of my heroes are illustrators. So, as an example, Norman Rockwell, we'll just use him. Of course, Sun Bloom was an illustrator. Interpreting was an illustrator before he made the jump to Western art. Blah 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 blah. You know, but uh, the point is, illustrators in general, you know, are just phenomenal. You know, I just I'm I just am a huge fan. And anyway, what happened was. So Norman Rockwell, the reason why we all know him so well is because he was doing magazine covers for the Saturday Evening Post for decades and decades. And I want to say in 1960, uh, he left the Post. And, of course, the Post was in decline. And uh, he ended up doing covers for uh, Life and Time and some other stuff. But it just wasn't the same. Just, you know, he would do, I think he did the uh, portrait of uh, Nasser, uh, uh, he had stuff from Egypt in the background and just some other stuff doesn't matter. The point is, he was always this commercial artist uh, doing these covers and so forth. Here's the problem. What happened was uh, the camera was taking over. And, and of course, uh, artists like Rockwell and Turpening and all the rest of them, you know, of course, uh, have used the camera I do. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a tool. But the point is, they were able to actually take these, get some fabulous photographs and put the photo right on the cover. And they do that to this day. You know, the magazines are still around. But uh, it's still, you know, visually, they didn't need the illustrators anymore. And in fact, the guy that uh, the guy that trained me that used to teach at the art center that I was talking about earlier, uh, you know, got a hold of me six months after I made the job, blah, 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 that guy. He said that he, because he, he used to be an illustrator out of New York. 
And he said that uh, he was watching that stuff happen also in the, uh, basically illustration was almost, it was largely been done, we'll say by the, his opinion, mid sixties. Oh, I'm bringing that up because of course uh, that lends strength to the 1950s golden age thing. But a lot of that was just the camera was replacing the illustrators in many, many ways within the magazine. I think that's interesting. And I, and I, I think where I'm, what's curious to me is like at that time, some of those people were so prominent as illustrators, like Norman Rockwell, that he was allowed to sign his work when it was in a Coca-Cola ad, which was a rare thing at the time. And so whether it's a different medium today or not, it'd be interesting if some of those brands went back to par partnering with artists. Maybe it's a, a digital artist who makes um, digital illustration or something like that. And then having them be part of the the brand itself or the story of the, the message. But um, that's, I guess, just not as common today. But I think that'd be kind of a cool thing to return to for them. First of all, I think you're right. I would, I would say, though, part of the deal that happened. Okay, first of all, every time that Norman Rockwell was on, this was, well, I don't know about every time, but it built up to the point where whenever they had the cover of a Saturday evening post that had a Norman Rockwell painting on the cover, they had up the production run 500,000. Wow. <laughs> so because Norman Rockwell's painting was going to be on the cover, they would sell a half a million more magazines. Now, I don't think they didn't know that, right? I mean, here's the guy. Secondly, they started giving him grief because they said, dude, your, your name is almost bigger than the Saturday <laughs> Evening Post because Rockwell kept making his name bigger and bigger and bigger. 4% bigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so the point is, he kept making it bigger, and they're giving him some blowback. Finally, saying, "Norman, dude, you got to, you got to kind of keep it down because you're competing." So he was a rock star, you know. He was very, very famous, and then he fell from that hard, and he disappeared. And people pretty much had forgotten about him until I think it was 1968. So here he was. He was largely on hard times in some ways, where he wasn't doing the post covers. That was gone, and maybe he'd do a Time magazine cover. Okay, good, big deal. And so all that's happening. So what happened was, I think it was 1968, a gallery in New York City went ahead and did a uh, one-man show for him with all these illustrations. And what happened when they put those paintings, and I got to tell you something, because I've been to the Rockwell Museum, I've seen Norman Rockwell paintings, at originals in person and stuff. They're a little mind-blowing. Every time I think I'm hot stuff, all I got to do is look at a Rockwell and I start going, okay, Mama, you still got, you got to grow. <laughs> to, to grow. And so the point is, there's these magnificent pieces of art. Everybody can poo-poo them, and I don't like this, and I don't like that. Okay, sure. But you know what? In the end, if you go look at those things in person, they're unbelievably well-painted for the most part. Okay. So the point is, they put these original Rockwells in this, in this uh, gallery in New York City. People flipped out, and there were lines down the boulevard, you know, on the sidewalk. People trying to get in there to see these things. And they said, they said, he was the artist that people had forgotten about, but nobody wanted to forget. <laughs> you know, so they, they had, he had fallen out of, we'll say the public eye, but once he was reintroduced, they're like, oh, yeah. And what that did, that launched, it was really fortuitous for me because what happened was that launched this gigantic revival in Norman Rockwell's art. And so about that time, I was uh, 15 and 19, so... I was around 15 when all that was, the books were coming out. After the show, all of a sudden, uh, all the publishers were making, 
I don't even know how many Norman Rockwell books I've got. It's just, it's wild. There are a lot. The point is, all this publishing started to come out while I was in high school uh, art class. And I, this is a funny thing. So I'm drawing a person, head, doesn't matter, in art class. And this girl walks up. She goes, oh, that looks like a Norman Rockwell. And I said, who's that? She goes, you don't know who Norman Rockwell is? I said, no. So all of a sudden, that blew everything open. And what that did, so you have to understand, you know, like we'll just make it up here and say I'm like 15. So all of a sudden, my understanding of what excellence is with art is like, you know, all of a sudden I've got this. What I think is great is terrible. And all of a sudden, this guy had set this bar way, way, way up, you know. And so what happened was uh, I started buying these books on Rockwell and so forth. And I started trying to copy out of them. I was doing paintings out of them, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And in some ways, and this is at the same time while I'm going down and being trained down at Balboa Park, you know, okay, that's good. But all this stuff is kind of converging to uh, reset my own mind about what quality of what a quality painting really is that's never left i love it i love it so let's return back to the most recent decade when you've been a professional artist are there any notice notable milestones um any any sort of uh breakthroughs or moments where you felt like your career took a positive turn or well let's do this sure i can i can talk about that but i forgot to answer your question so i want to return to that you said but what happened was uh, it's all freelance work. See, there's a huge difference. I was talking about commercial art and I kind of got done a rabbit trail. A commercial artist has it way, way easier. In fact, honestly, if you look at it on some level, what I'm doing is closer to commercial art in a fine art setting because you have stuff that is, so let's do it this way. Uh, so we'll say I'm a commercial artist. I get the comp okay. And then the comp is okay. And then I do the painting and then the business, corporation, movie studio, whatever, they have basically guaranteed my payment. In my universe, as a freelance artist, there, there are largely no guarantees. I can even have people that say, yeah, I want that. And when it shows up in the gallery, they go, I don't want it. I mean, they're, they're just there's, there's no contract. There's no guarantee. And so I'm bringing that up because it was... That's a hairy thing to do. You know, I mean, at that point, you're you're pushing to do the best paintings you can. Ideally, your paintings are better than anything else that's out there. People, oh, I'll take that. But the point is there, there are no guarantees. And so we're selling art through uh, uh, this one gallery we'll see up in, uh, well, they're, they're in Scottsdale and Jacksonville, but we use Jacksonville as an example. And, you know, we're running out of money. You know, I mean, that just happens. You don't, it's, it's this feast or famine thing bust in a way i mean especially back then and so and so what happened was uh we're like in trouble i mean and all of a sudden a check just shows up that you know for i think at the time it was like six grand or something from a painting that had sold up in jackson and you know my wife and i looked at each other and just about started crying just because, you know, we just didn't expect that. The gallery never told us. And by the way, it's not the gallery's job to call me every time they saw a painting. But nevertheless, it came and it just seemed fortuitous, you know, when, when things were looking dark and all of a sudden, wow, 
things are looking up again, just like just just pivoted, you know. And that's it, neat. It's funny how your emotions uh, can move up and down so much. <laughs> they shouldn't. But they do. I, I just have to say that. But I will also say uh, what's happened. Uh, so, for example, I was trying to get in this. Uh, I'm not going to name them because it's not really important. But I was trying to get in this uh, huge West show on the West Coast. And they wouldn't let me in. They wouldn't let me in. It was stupid. But nevertheless, uh, finally, you know, the planets aligned and I got in. And so, and I had a pretty good sized painting uh, by the show standards. It was a 30 by 40, which is pretty small by my standards that I'm, what I'm painting today. And so I went ahead and put a 30 by 40 in there and uh, went to the show. First time I'm in this, uh, I'm in this high end world class show, you know. And I go in there and I, we actually ended up hitting traffic. Uh, I was actually up in LA and we hit some traffic. And so we got there late and I, we walk in and an artist friend of mine comes running up, you're painting sold, you're painting sold. And so I thought, well, that's cool. You know, and I, but come to find out it was one of only three large, and we'll call it large, three large paintings that sold that night. All the rest of them were kind of small. I, I think uh, the economy was kind of stumbling maybe at that time, whatever, you know, it comes and goes. But the point is, my painting is sold. That has been a repetitive thing with me. Uh, my paintings very often have sold, and I'm grateful. I can't tell you how grateful I am. But very often, my paintings have sold when others, uh, and I wish the others would sell. Don't get me wrong. I'm nothing against them. But I will tell you, mine have sold when others haven't. And I can't necessarily tell you exactly why, but it has been a repetitive thing. And uh, well, was there maybe a... mine were cheap? Maybe mine were cheap. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Who knows? Was there a certain inflection point where after you had quit, where you felt like, oh, this is going to work. This is really humming. What, what were some of those positive milestones? So I would say, I, I think what happens. Okay, let's do it this way. So what happens, the... Uh, It went from it went from me pursuing galleries to galleries pursuing me. That's hard to ignore, and it's a whole different relationship when the gallery is called you. Can we please carry your work? Okay, so that and, and God bless those people for even doing that. I respect them and honor them and appreciate them. I'm grateful. Okay, so that's 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 going to affect your mind. Uh, secondly, of course, and I'm, I'm getting in these shows and I'm selling. And by the way, I'm just going to say it. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. It's probably important for your audience to hear this, maybe. I am personally, I'm not pursuing, let me just put it this way. I'm not pursuing shows right now. And I mean, never pursue shows. And I've had shows pursue me. I mean, just, it's very wonderful, but I see a show, you, you create the art, you have to ensure the art. You have to hope it gets there in one piece where a forklift doesn't go through the crate. There goes your painting. You know, and then you get to, oh, by the way, they want you there. But I'm not against all this. I'm just saying, you know, there, there's there's more going on to be in a show than people might imagine. Now, there's a huge rush. Gee, you're there. You're talking to people. Everybody's patting you on the back. They think everything's great. And that's, I quantify that. But I'm away from the easel. I'm not painting. And I've got to fly there, get a rental car, pay for food. The economics hotel, are more complex than on the surface. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm not going to say it. it. It's just, there, there, there's just 
on as a businessman, I look at that and I go, okay, this is the cost. What's the yield? You know, I mean, this, what am I going to benefit after I do all this? Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. How about if I just sell the painting through the gallery? Now you have to be, I have to be fair here and say the percentages through a show are heavier toward the artist. So there's benefit there. I, I have, okay. So there's that. But on the other hand, you know, when I start measuring out time away from the easel, travel, all the stuff, you know, in my case right now, uh, it just isn't making sense. Okay. Now that said, that hasn't stopped them from trying to get a hold of me to see if I, in fact, will be in the, that will also affect your mind. Next, I've been on the cover of uh, several magazines and I've got people, excuse me, I've got magazines contacting me to interview me and uh, they want to, you know, so I'm, I'm getting interviewed, you know, and, and listen, I'll tell you a funny thing about this. This is really kind of bizarre. You know, when you're just starting out, you make the jump, you go, okay, bye. Like this. Can I, I want to be on a, you dream you're going to be on the cover of a magazine one day. I mean that you get your head that way and you kind of, here we go. Let's push, push, push. I want to be, and it happens and it did right more than once. And so that happens. And Finally, you, you kind of go, I'm too busy. I'm not sure I want, I don't mean any disrespect. I love these people. They're kind and wonderful. And I just think the world of them, but I'm just not there in my head and heart anymore, you know, where I have to be interviewed by a magazine or I have to be on the cover of one. And I, that's on me. That's not on the magazines. I, I, I know magazine owners personally, and they are some of the most fabulous people you'll ever meet. So there you go. Okay. But it's funny how our mind and hearts turn once we've been there, I guess is my point, which says more about me than the magazines. I'm just, it's funny where we go from here to here because we've been there. <laughs> we just, we, we achieve that. That also affects your, your, your head and your heart just because you're talking, okay, well, this, this, this. oh, so now I've been on magazine and uh, covers of magazines and so forth. And what's also interesting is that that affects your galleries too when they're talking about you. Another funny thing too, I'll, I'll tell you this because as a marketer, you'll appreciate that. This, and this was, uh, I would say this was uh, stimulated by uh, some of the research and stuff I, from Dan Kennedy. But I went ahead and I had a, uh, I had a book created mm -hmm. that was. Did we talk about this before? Anyway, I had a I had a hardcover book. It's a coffee table book. I had a special coffee table book made for my high net and ultra high net worth collector. And I have to tell you something. It's magnificent. In fact, one of the magazines, I went ahead and uh, the, uh, one of the magazines got a hold of one of them. Just out of gratitude, I said, Gene, here, thanks. thanks. And I went ahead and sent one to them. The editor-in-chief of the magazine saw that thing and they said, in like 37 years, they've never seen anything like this. I'm trying to give you the quality. I mean, how, okay. So, but it better be because it's going to these billionaires and, and these people that, you know, got a lot more money than I do. And so, I mean, you got, it's got to be something special because that's who's getting it. So I went ahead and put this book together and we have sent those and given those things out to these collectors. They are blown away marketing wise. This is a marketing issue when those, because I'll, here's a funny thing about it. These people that are very well to do. God bless them. They, they, they pay a lot of money for a painting. 
They don't expect anything else. They just don't. But when you give them something else, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, they, they feel like they're indebted. How many more pages can I buy? You know, and, and that just says probably more about them. But I'm, I'm just saying the fact is the book has been a wonderful marketing tool and it looks very impressive. In fact, each page is like uh, thicker than cardstock, you know, and, you, and they're like plates. Sounds and like that should be like a surprise with, you know, included with every painting that's purchased or something like that. Well, maybe. Yeah, that's possible. That's possible. They're pretty expensive because I didn't make many. I see. But the point we made, like we made like 27 of them and it was a lot of money. But the point is, the point is, as a marketing tool, they've been, of course, all business is relational. And of course, I'm trying to build a relationship with the clients. Listen, I appreciate you. You paid for the painting. God bless you. By the way, as for this, you don't expect it. Here's my form of appreciation to right. you and so forth. And I'm going to run something past you because I, I, I've i kind of come to this conclusion. On some level, it feels like all marketing is giving. So you have to give someone. So, for example, if I watch, uh, they had a Piper Cub land on this dealer port, I think in Dubai, way like, you know, 87 stories up or something crazy. And it lands there. It's crazy that that airplane was able to land on that helipad. What was that? Okay. Red Bull right on the side of that thing. Okay. And then of course they take off and he gets, and he takes, okay. That was entertaining. The point is it was entertaining. It was entertainment. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's right. And it also had Red Bull on there. So the fact is Red Bull gave us the entertainment while we were marketed to. So they gave us this, we received the entertainment, of course, while we're receiving the entertainment. Television is that way. You know, uh, the reason why we sit through these dumb ads is because you know, they're giving us the, the show in between the ads. So I've come to the conclusion that, that on some level, it's like uh, all marketing uh, seems to have a give uh, element to it. And then you can go ahead and you can receive because you've given. And I got to tell you, as we have given, you know, I've actually given like nine by 12. They're small little paintings away to uh, uh, some very handpicked collectors. They're blown away. Again, they don't expect yep. it. Uh, I like giving the books away easier because I can make them easier. But but the point is, uh, it's still that. And the next, you know, they want to buy, you know, two more paintings. I love, you just, have you ever read the quote, uh, okay. money is the echo of value? Money anything. is the echo of value. Okay. So the idea is that you have to put value out into the world. And the more value you put back, put out there, the, the bigger that echo can be back to you. You can capture some of that value in return. But it starts with you having to step out and courage and give without, without strings attached. If you're giving and you expect something right, right away, then you're not really giving. And that's really hard. You have to have sort of an abundance mindset. But if you can figure out some way, you can slice off some, some part of what you do and give it uh, generously. Um, uh, yeah, it will almost statistically come back to you, but you can't predict which person is going to well, come back to you. We're walking down through a farmer's market in Little Italy here in San Diego a few weeks ago. And there are all these canopies and people giving stuff away. Okay, fine. And and here's a guy with this, he calls it fruit leather. And what it is, is just dehydrated, freeze-dried. I don't know what it is. But it's uh, mango and I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, he's giving pieces of it away. Duh. And so then I'll see you eat that. You go, oh, yeah. It's it's all the same. It's all the same. You know, I mean, it's, it's you'll receive. And of course, you know, the Bible says that. 
Good measure, press down, shaking together, running over, will men get back into your bosom. So the point is, it's all based on giving. And so I, I, it's like this revelation, you know, where how do you give? And Kennedy was always big on that because he said that uh, what he was always trying to do is figure out ways to spend more money on his clients than the competition. You really are a student of Dan Kennedy. You know, you know your stuff. <laughs> That's yeah, his but, big idea is like whoever can spend the most to acquire the customer will win in the long run. Well, he talks about Schultz. He, he talks about Schultz with, he, he said, he talks about price elasticity. And he talks about how uh, that's what Schultz brought with uh, Starbucks, where uh, all of a sudden Schultz went in and, and he goes, well, how do we spend more on our customers when they show up? And they do, you know, and all of a sudden, oh, but by the way, they charge two fifty for a cup of coffee. It used to be a dollar ten, you know, right. all this stuff's going, you know, with the elasticity of the price. Absolutely. So, no, this is great. So that, maybe that's a, a good place to wrap things up. It's just the importance of, of giving. And so think about, if you're an artist, think about ways that you can you know, give, whether it's give um, a small work or could you be giving up your time, giving up your attention, right? People want to be in relationship with other people. If you can uh, be a good uh, friend, a, a good um, uh, per connection, if you can build community around what you're doing, that's a way you can give freely as well. You don't have to, you know, commit to <laughs> giving away free paintings in all cases or anything like that. Um, there's another th idea that you might be interested about. It's a uh, really popular in high ticket B2B uh, software sales. They call it account-based marketing. And the idea is that, you know, maybe your your service is a, a million dollar enterprise software product. And so there's not that many companies that benefit from it. You pick out certain logos, maybe it's IBM or Coca-Cola, and then you would engage in marketing efforts that are 100% specific to that brand, that logo, because it would be so valuable to get that one customer. Um, it makes sense to do that rather than sort of mass market or, or more broader uh, marketing messages. And so then there, there are companies that have cropped up that specialize in helping you give hyper-personalized gifts or handwritten notes and sort of these these campaigns that are um, targeted to very valuable customers. So um, I don't have more to share on that than that, but I feel like it could be something that there could be some interesting parallels with your sort of clientele and what you're doing. No, that's more, I mean, while I'm hearing you talk, and of course, I'm just, I've got this simplified, okay? I don't know the the entirety of what yeah. you're presenting, but I will tell you while you're talking, we're already doing that. <laughs> exactly. We are, we are, no, we are, we exactly. are doing that. And, and uh, you know, so for example, like I've got uh, one of my gallery directors, I mean, the homes that these paintings are going into are big. I mean, okay. So the, the heart of one house, one of my collectors, just the middle of the main part of their house has, has a 38 foot ceiling. And so, you got a 38 foot ceiling, you take and you put a 16 by 20 painting in there. Oh, let's, can we put that in the bathroom? I'm just telling you, it's, you need these big painting for these big spaces, which of course is one of the reasons why I'm painting big. But, you know, you get these people and what's happened. So one of my directors, uh, he'll go to the homes and he'll look at the walls and look around and he's kind of seeing what, uh, what might work or not and whatever. It's very personalized uh, attention. I yeah. would say, but, uh, but it's it's uh, it's that same kind of thing where it's commitment and it's becoming it's treating the people that des I'll just say that deserve it uh, very special and unique because they are special and unique uh, in many ways and and they and so anyway all that and, and what also comes to mind for me is I think that type of person probably gets their interest and what they enjoy and value is experiences maybe more so than 
than trinkets and things like that. So I was just reading, um, you haven't seen it yet. There's an amazing uh, profile of Gagosian that was in the New Yorker today. Did you see that? Oh, Larry? Yeah. <laughs> profile yeah, of Larry? Yeah, very in-depth. It was like... You know the sun, you know the sun doesn't set on his that's, empire? That was one of the quotes in the thing. It's like a, it's a huge thing. It's true. It was... His gold stream that he flies around the world. Larry's got a Yeah, you, you should you should read this because it just sh- sh- highlights basically what it sounds like. And I, I know there's more to his business than this, but basically he you know puts together amazing events where it's a dinner party with uh, one part billionaire, one part celebrity, one part artist, and he gets this right balance of kind of creating an experience for these people, and it just draws them to him. You know. So so I'll I'll tell you this is a conversation I've had with uh, one of my galleries. Okay, and we've talked about. So, so basically it's about, it's about your tribe. Okay. And so you get these people that, uh, they can, we'll just say they can buy anything they want. We'll just use that. Okay. They also rub elbows with people that are, uh, we'll just say similarly situated. That's their tribe. Right. And so very often, you know, we'll make it up here and, and just have fun for just a moment. And then let's, let's have uh, a dinner for, we'll say uh, 10 people, five couples, and we'll just entertain. Well, they're all high net, ultra high net worth people. Okay, fine, they show up. So sitting around that table, well, Fred and I just got, Fred and I just got back from a safari in Africa and we just got back from, we did this, and there's all this uh, friendly, uh, I wouldn't call it one-upmanship, but that's probably what's going on. And so the fact is they're, 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 they are very often comparing comparing stories experiences experience stories and experiences and i'll tell you a funny thing too this because i'm i'm busy i'm trying to find these my buyers you know and i've got this sculptor with a ca he actually opened up some doors for me where i could actually meet some of these people that are collecting art because i want to hear i want to know how they think my god you know what's the psychology of this and so so i so this is a funny thing you'll love this story so what happened they said uh so they were going to the Cowboy Hall of Fame. They're Western art collectors. And so the Preter West at the time probably still is. The largest sale of Western art in the world was happening in Oklahoma City once a year. And they would fly back there. Maybe they still do. Fly back there to the Preter West show. And I said, why do you do that? Cause, I mean, because you can just, there's an online catalog, just hit that. I want that. He's no, 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 no. It's the experience. And so what they do is they want to fly back, show up at the banquet, sit next to their friends that they maybe only see once a year. It's this, it's this experience. And they said something very funny. They said, uh, or interesting, they said, you know what? Otherwise, if you just buy something online, like you're talking about, I said, because why don't you? They said, if we do that, that's like somebody dragging the lion to your front door and you shoot the lion. And, you know, okay. Come get, come get a photo. Get <laughs> As opposed to going to Africa, having the safari, having the guides, taking, you know, and and having this whole narrative to go along with it. And so the point was, they were determined to make sure they had the story, the narrative to accompany the purchase of the art when they were back in Oklahoma City. So they could sit around the table with the other nine people at that, you know, banquet, we'll say. And they could say, well, you know, we were over there and there were 18 people bidding on this thing, but we won, you know, and we... And so there's a story going around this thing around the purchase of the art. That's yeah. Huge. If you're an artist, you cannot discount this at all. This is, I'm so glad we're, we're uh, talking about this because it's, you want to think about how can you create a collector experience and you say, oh, well, like these people, they, they don't, did they, do they really 
uh, the dealer or the artist, do they really create this experience for this type of person? And it's like, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of intentionality. There's thought that goes into so they can have that story. Is that what, you know? is that what Larry's exactly, doing? Exactly. Right. Well, Gagosian, I mean, he's got that wired. It's an experience. And they can, people could say, well, you know, I was over there and there were 87 other people, you know, and we're all there and they're all movers and shakers. And by the way, this chic was there. And by the way, it's this not guy just about the art. There. It's about that overall experience. It, it's just, it's, it's an absolute experience. And, it, and if you're not you know, selling like, to sheiks and those types of people yet, that's totally fine. You can still create an experience for people that are in your area that are collectors and watch that have a huge effect on how many people say yes and your price point and all those good things, I would say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, Chris, it's been so much fun chatting with you. I hope this was fun for you. Um, uh, if people oh, yeah, want yeah. to learn more about you, where can they find out more online? Well, you know, I've, I've, uh, of course, thanks for asking. I've got uh, SC Mummert, like Sam Charlie Mummert, M U M M E R T, SC Mummert.com. And uh, that's my website. I actually have, for artists, if you look, I've got a book that I'm trying to wrap up. I've been working on it too long, but I've got a book where it says, uh, if you click on the book thing, there's also an article section that will uh, drop down and the article section. Actually, I've actually put some articles there. What happened, the, I was told there were, the, there were the world's largest online artist guild approached me years ago, like eight, nine years ago. They approached me to please do that. I want to do this. Can you do this? What about that? I said, I can't do any of that stuff. I'm too busy. So they finally defaulted down to where can you write articles for us? I said, I'll tell you what, I'll write one article as an experiment, because I, I can see how much time I spent on it. And then if you like it, because you may not like it, if you like it, then we can go from there. So I wrote an article that they were doing hand springs. They thought that was great. So I said, okay, I'll do 12 total. And I did. And I think I've got uh, six or seven of those articles that went around the world uh, are actually for free on my website. If you click up on the menu bar, you see, I think, book in progress, you'll see articles and get down there. And then you just got to click away and you'll finally get to these PDFs. It's free. And they're, some of the information that's in there is really pretty wonderful. They, the feedback that, they, that the artist guild got uh, was fabulous. People are just flipping out about that. Okay. Next thing is, uh, so I'm just offering that to people. Sounds fantastic. This. Yeah. The next thing is another free resource is I'm starting to put up uh, YouTube videos, which of course I mentioned to that earlier. I've got a YouTube channel. And I think if you just put in SC Mummert YouTube or something like that, you'll find me. But I'm putting up videos and I'm not very good at it, to be honest. I'm getting better, you know, but uh, the information is awesome. Good. I'm not good, but the information is good. So they can see that too. It doesn't. Yeah. If you, you wait for perfect production value, you'll never get started. So just if the content's good, you'll grow an audience and then you'll just get a little bit better at that every day. I'm over 1100 people, which is a drop in the ocean, in the ocean for YouTube. But it's a big that's awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again so much. Uh, let's talk again soon. Okay. Thanks, All right. Eric. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.